This is Jocko Podcast with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And tonight's podcast is a little bit different, but I think it has some good information in it. I was asked by two people who have outstanding podcasts of their own to sit down and have a conversation about leadership and specifically leadership inside of atrocities and when we recorded it I wasn't really expecting it but we decided that we would all release it on our podcast platforms so the two people that I recorded this with are Daniele Bellelli and Daryl Cooper unfortunately Echo Charles was not present for this recording and Daniele Bellelli, first of all, he's a history professor, he's a martial artist, he's an author, and yes, he's a podcaster. He has two podcasts that are great to listen to. They're great podcasts. One is called The Drunken Taoists, and the other one is History on Fire. They're great podcasts, they're entertaining podcasts, they're educational, they're, like I said, they're super informative. And the podcast that you're about to listen to is based on a couple other podcasts. The first one being by Daniele from his History on Fire podcast number 32 Alpha, 32A for civilians out there. And the the podcast is about the Sand Creek Massacre, which took place in present-day Kiowa County, Colorado on November 29th, 1864, where there were about somewhere between 70 and 170 Cheyenne Arapaho Indians, mostly women and children, who were slaughtered by a 675-man force of the Colorado U.S. Volunteer Cavalry. Brutal situation horrible situation and like I said Daniele Bellelli talks about that on his history on fire podcast number 32 alpha the other podcast this is related to is from Daryl Cooper's podcast his his podcast is called the martyr made podcast and specifically podcast number 10 it's about the Milai massacre and that is when about 500 innocent civilians again mostly women and children were murdered and many also raped and mutilated by US soldiers in Vietnam Daryl Cooper is also an incredible podcaster he's a great storyteller and he goes through ridiculous I would say depths to give all perspectives of a story and he, his podcast, Martyr Made, is fantastic. He doesn't put them out off as often as I wish he would, but the podcasts are great. The one on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that he started his first, I think it's his first six podcasts on Martyr Made, that's what it's about, and they're fantastic. And he's a veteran of the U.S. Navy. He's a wrestler. He's a jiu-jitsu player. And he's really smart, well-read person and great to listen to and then the last podcast is my own podcast uh, Jocko podcast number 31 four hours in Milai, which is when I did 
an assessment of a book by that name and talked about that same massacre in Vietnam. And in this podcast that you're about to listen to, the three of us discuss how these atrocities come about and what can be done to prevent them in the future. So that's the lay down. And here it is. Daniele Jocko, everybody, I'm here. Daryl Cooper, uh, talking to two of my favorite people. Um, we're going to go some dark places today. You've listened to the last two podcasts that Daniele and I have put out, and maybe about 60% of the podcast that Jocko's put out, then you know we're going we're gonna to dive into some dark places. Um, I want to get it started pretty quick. We've been talking beforehand, so let's just jump right into it. Um, Daniele and I recently did a series that we uh, cooperated on where he covered the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864. Some U.S. Army soldiers uh, massacred some Native Americans in Colorado. Um, I did the My Lai Massacre, um, similar situation 104 years later in the jungles of Vietnam. Um, we're fortunate enough to be here with Jocko. If you don't know who Jocko is, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself just a little bit. Yeah, my name is Jocko Willink. I was in the military for 20 years and retired in 2010 and now i've written a couple books and have a podcast called jocko podcast because i don't get really creative <laughs> with the names of things so jocko's pretty direct about things so uh, he's also kind of humble jocko is a navy seal commander in iraq he led task force bruiser is that right into uh, task unit bruiser, task yeah. unit bruiser into the uh, battle of ramadi which if you know anything about uh the war in iraq you know, the Battle of Ramadi and the Battle of Fallujah are probably the, the two big fights that get mentioned the most. But whereas Fallujah was more of, an, more of a direct assault on the city after, uh, after the insurgents captured and tortured and mutilated some U.S. contractors and Bush ordered the Marines to retaliate, the Battle of Ramadi was a little bit different. Uh, Jocko is going to talk a little bit about the environment that they went into uh, going into it. And so he's got some military experience, not only being on the ground, but of leading men in battle in an environment, an insurgent war where you've got different groups of people, different sects, the Sunni and the Shia in Iraq, who are fighting a bloody battle that we're in the middle of, but who we can't engage with on their level. You know, these are people who are fighting a very, very dirty and ugly war against one another and against us if they get their hands on us. As Americans um, going into a war like that, you know, we've got a we've got a different mentality. We try to avoid behaving in ways that dishonor us, and uh, it's something that Jocko takes very seriously. And he he had to let, lead men into combat under those conditions. So we're going to talk about that. It was 2006, April of 2006, when you led your men into Ramadi to begin with. Is that right? Yes. Um, yeah, that's what it was. So uh, shortly before that, a couple months before the Golden Dome of the Al Askari Mosque was blown up by Al Qaeda in Iraq. Zarqawi's people. Uh, this is an ancient Shia mosque, one of the most sacred places to, to Shia Islam. Well, well, interestingly, Ramadi was is primarily Sunni. In fact, it's almost all Sunni. And interestingly, the majority of the military forces in Iraq, especially the army, were were Shia. And so you had to kind of diffuse that tension on a pretty regular basis to make sure that there weren't you know reprisal killings and the there was definitely some level of mistrust between the sunnis that lived there in the city 
and the Shia military, but it's definitely it's it's absolutely it was absolutely clear that the the Sunnis that lived in Ramadi, the local Sunnis that lived in Ramadi, much preferred the Shia army soldiers to the insurgents that were there that were being run by Al Qaeda in Iraq, by Zarqawi and the likes, and because what they were doing was just savagery and. You know everything that you hear about they were skinning people alive they were beheading whole families they were torturing raping and murdered murdering the local populace in to get them to support them as much as they could through pure terror and so the local populace even though they might not have been you know who they're they're basically going with who's their worst enemy at the time their worst enemy at the time was without question al-qaeda in iraq and so the Shia army that was there to fight Al Qaeda in Iraq, the the Sunnis were were generally in support of what the army was doing there. So it was it was a little bit different than in areas like Sadr City, where the the Shias in Sadr City were very active. There's an active fight going on against coalition forces. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a tricky situation. When, when you roll into a situation like that with American soldiers where both sides are engaged in just a hurricane of atrocities across the country and where the people who are there, they might be looking to you for safety, or I guess that's a question I would have. Uh, they probably, under the circumstances, were the people in the city. I mean, they probably were looking to you to protect them. Absolutely. And, and just before we showed up, just to, just to kind of paint this as clear as I can, and, and I forget the exact numbers, and I apologize for that, but... Just before we showed up, the insurgents murdered, it was something like seven, eight, nine, ten of the leading tribal sheikhs in the area. And the tribal sheikhs that survived that left. They left. And so that just put the whole, the whole city, you know, under such a grip of fear of the insurgents that they just basically surrendered. As much as you can surrender, which means, hey, if you want to come and stay at my house and you want to sit in my backyard and launch mortars at the coalition forces, we're not going to say anything to you because we're going to we want to live. We don't want to get killed. And that's what you end up with. You end up with passive support. And that's what the locals were doing. They were passively supporting the insurgents only because they didn't want to have their heads cut off. And so as we and, and this was a brilliant strategy that was spearheaded by the 1-1 AD, the, the Ready First Brigade of the 1st Armored Division, run by a guy named Colonel Sean McFarland, who ended up being a general, and he's a brilliant guy and, and a great leader. But you know his, I, his attitude, which he actually got from H.R. McMaster, which he had employed up in Talifar, and 1-1 and, uh, AD had actually gone into Talifar and gotten a turnover and understood what they had done up in Talifar. And, and the strategy was called seize, clear, hold, and build, which was going to these enemy-controlled territories, these enemy-controlled neighborhoods, and stay there. And so that's what that's what the strategy was. And that was a lot different than the strategy that had been being used up until this point, not just in Ramadi, but in all of Iraq. Is that a strategy that um, it almost seems like, uh, looking at uh, reading about Ramadi from the outside as somebody who's never been in combat, it, it almost seems like, the goal was to go in there and establish your dominance over the city, almost to show the people of the city that you don't have to be afraid of these people because they're afraid of us. That's, and we're going to, we have freedom in this city. We can 
take our Humvees and patrol these streets, and they're not going to come out and fight us because they're afraid of us, and so you don't have to fear them. It almost seems like that was the goal there. Yeah, I wouldn't use the word dominance because we weren't trying to dominate the uh, local populace. Right. We were trying to provide security for the local okay, populace, sure. and, and obviously that's a big difference because when you start having an attitude of we're going to dominate the local populace, that that's a, a, just a small step in the wrong direction. Right. That's sure. a small step in sure, the wrong direction. Sure, sure. Whereas saying, hey, we're here to protect and secure and stabilize the local populace. That is that is what we were doing. Yeah, I think it took us maybe a little bit longer than we wish it would have to uh, recognize that before you can do anything counterinsurgency, you have to provide security to the people. Like, 100%. If you're not leaving them a choice, then they're going to provide that passive support, right? And I think that's one of the issues that shows up with the kind of episodes we did, you know, both the story of Sun Creek and the story of Milai. You have a situation in which suddenly some guys begin to look everybody on the quote-unquote other side as belonging to the same field. Why? Because they are all Cheyenne or they are all Vietnamese. They are all, there's no sense that they are not all in the same boat. Some people are your allies. Some people are your enemies. Some people are exactly what you are saying, stuck in between where I kind of have to cooperate with your enemies, not because I want to, but because I really have no other choice. And you cannot treat all of them the same way. And so I think the dilemma that you are facing, this idea of having to figure out, okay, there are people that we're here to protect. Those are not the people we're going after. There are other people that we need to take care of. That seems to be one of the things that was very much missing, you know, that nuance, that ability to look at people who may look the same way, but they are not the same people, to look at them with different eyes. That seemed to be really what was missing in some of the stories that we treated, where the guys who did what they did is because to them is like, an Indian is an Indian, uh, Vietnamese is Vietnamese, whatever, it's all the same, doesn't really matter. And I think is like, how do you see what leads to that point? on one side, and vice versa. What is that you guys were doing to make sure that it doesn't go to that point where your guys would not make that switch to that frame of mind and keep their priorities very clear in terms of differentiating in terms of who they are facing? And Real quick, can I just add a yeah. supplement to that question because that's, that's kind of what I wanted to ask as well is uh, how, do you, how do you train your men and lead your men in such a way that they can pull the trigger when they have to and when civilians get killed on, you know, accidentally, that that doesn't destroy them emotionally, right? There's got to be some kind of separation there without having them fully enter over into that mindset that Danielle is talking about, where you're just dehumanizing the enemy altogether. When you have to lead your men in a situation like that, like how did, how did, how did you deal with that? Yeah. Well, this is leadership. Yeah. <laughs> this is leadership, and this is leadership in war. And this is, you know, this, this question that you're asking is the, is, you know, one of the largest possible questions you could ask about combat leadership. And, you know, I appreciate that you guys keep referring to me, but I was, I had 35 or 40 SEALs there, depending on the time. And there was 5,600 soldiers and Marines that were there that were discriminating targets every single day and that had outstanding leadership that were that were making sure that guys with less training than my guys, guys that were younger than my guys, guys that had a tougher job than my guys in many cases, would still discriminate targets and make sure that they were were engaging enemy personnel and not civilians. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm certainly not saying that civilians didn't get killed because civilians got killed, and it's an awful thing, and it's one of the things I talk about all the time, if you go to war and you're not 
comfortable with the fact that you're going to kill innocent people, then you probably don't have the will to go to war. And maybe what you're going to war for isn't doesn't meet the threshold of what warrants a war. Mm-hmm. And and if that's what the conclusion you come to, that's fine. You know, let's hope you come to it before you've before you've beyond before you're on the ground and, and blood has been spilled. But there's so many little things to, to that would that would that you know that we'd cover to talk about. I mean, just even the distinction that I just made between like, hey, we're we're going in there to dominate. That that's a little step. It's one little step, and using that word and then following it up. And, and we talked a little bit about this. And and Daryl, I was listening to your podcast about the Mila Massacre, and I, and I did one about it as well. And one of the things that that really that I talked about in pretty great depth because for me I had I, I had a gr- incredible correlate correlation between what happened in Milai and what I sometimes saw happen overseas and that was w- with the intelligence that you're receiving and you could see and I pointed it out in my podcast and I, I don't remember like all the exact verbiage but you know at the senior levels of intelligence the intelligence report was that Pinkville or the area of Pinkville or Milai, whatever you want to call it, Milai 4, that that area, the, the initial intelligence was, you know, suspected Vietnamese in the, or suspected Viet Cong uh, area could be possible, you know, Viet Cong. And, and then it went down one level in the chain of command. And the next people that briefed it, it was, you know, just a little bit stronger. You know, it was... You know Viet Cong area Viet Cong controlled area and then it went down one more level and it was Viet Cong uh, Headquarters area and then it got down to This is all Viet Cong and then they threw in the the fact that uh, you know the, the 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 people going to the market right it's market day mm. You know that started off as hey some people will be at the market on this day and by the time it got to the guys on the ground it was everyone that's good is going to be at the market everyone that's still in the village is going to be bad they're going to be vc and well you know what to do with vc yeah what he says is really interesting in terms of just human communication how in that case before you even go about americans and vietnamese you even discuss war or lead just the basics of human communication how sometime starting one degree off before you know it if you keep it long enough that one degree off took you so far off course from the reality they are trying to describe that the words which is kind of like plain telephone you know when you whisper something in the other person's ear it doesn't sound that different from what you just heard but you just tweak it just tiny bit by the time you are down 20 people the message has no similarity whatsoever to the original one and it seems like that as uh, I think we do it all the time in daily life, but nobody dies as a result of it. Whereas in that ki- kind of scenario, people do die. The consequences are so much more dramatic as a result of that. And what's interesting is, and Daryl, you kind of brought up in your podcast, and, and you did as well, mm-hmm. Daniele, is how does this happen, mm-hmm. right? How does this happen? Because if you take a normal human being, and you drop them into the middle of that thing, they look around and they go, what the hell's happening? Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is actually what happened when, uh, when uh, Hugh Thompson came in his helicopter, he, he dropped into this situation and said, what the hell's going on here? This is totally wrong. Uh, but 
as you're as you're getting there if you're not on that mm-hmm. trip if you're not on that train as it's going off the rails you you don't recognize it and that's why one thing i talk about all the time from a leadership perspective is the ability to detach from all the chaos and all the mayhem that's happening because if you don't have to if you don't have the ability to detach from that chaos you're in it mm. and if you're in the chaos as a leader you don't see the mayhem that's happening and so it's so important for a leader in the business world, but certainly in the military, to be able, or in any leadership position, to be able to step back and and observe what's actually happening from a detached perspective. Because otherwise, you're in the storm, and that is not a good place to be as a leader. You've got to have rules for how you're going to behave before, while you're going into it. Because if you just, you know, if you're going to react to everything on the ground once you arrive, uh, I mean, it's always more expedient to just shoot them. You know, at the time, it's always easier and safer probably to just do the easy thing and be violent or whatever. So you have to have rules going into it. Um, did you have I guess, to say yeah, anything? one thing that I want, because the point he brings up is super interesting, but I think <laughs> essentially what you're saying is that the person in a position of leadership needs to be a Zen master. You know, they need to be in the middle of emotions that clearly are affecting everyone around them and they are bombarded. They are getting bombarded with those emotions. They need to be completely detached from this stuff. It makes perfect sense. How do you do it? Because it's a hell of a lot easier said than done, clearly. And how do people even train to get to that place? So, well, for one thing, when I was running the training for the West Coast SEAL teams, I would fire up that training to a point that it was there was total temptation for the leaders to get wrapped into the scenarios that I was developing for mm-hmm. them. There'd be total mayhem and if they let it happen, they would get wrapped up in these horrible scenarios mentally, emotionally. Yep. Yep. They'd be mad, they'd be mad at me because I was the guy that was running the training, they'd be mad at the opposing force role players, they'd be mad at their guys, they'd start yelling and screaming, they'd make bad decisions and and I wanted them to get there. Because I wanted them to see what happens when you get wrapped up in this stuff emotionally. So, and then what I would do is teach them that they have certain, what I would call red flags, certain, certain signals mm-hmm. that they need to learn how to pick up. Yeah. If you feel yourself start raising your voice, well, then that probably indicates that you might getting, be getting emotional. If you're breathing heavy, if your fists are clenched, there's all these things that you start to recognize. And once you can recognize them and you say, oh, okay, I'm starting to get emotional right now, need to step back. Now, interestingly, what I would often do and, and an easy methodology for training these guys was, first of all, stop looking down the sights of your weapon. Like you, You're not allowed to. And we'd give we'd give a leader a stick if we had to and take their gun away so that they weren't going to be shooting. They weren't going to be wrapped up in that tactical situation Mm -hmm. and literally put that weapon at high port and step back away from the firing line. Mm -hmm. You know, Callie, Callie is with his M16 gunning people down. He's completely wrapped up in what's happening. Medina's yelling and screaming. I mean, I, I talk about this with with police forces as well. If you want to hear people go, go listen to some of the bad shootings that you hear mm-hmm. and uh, police have a incredibly hard job they need way more training but go listen to some of those shootings that take place and listen to the pitch and the tone of the officer if and and what are they doing they're saying get down get down get down they're 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 completely emotional 
Right. And that emotion is going to drive bad decision making. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn how to detach. The way you do it is, and the way I would initially teach guys to do it is by physically putting their weapon at high port, stepping back away from the the actual firing line, and look, moving their head around and looking around. You know, so the story I wrote about in Extreme Ownership is, you know, we I had the the Delta Platoon commander who's a great guy, smart guy, you know, Ivy League, Naval Academy, and just just a, a brilliant guy, great guy. And he was, we were doing some training, and it was in Humvees, and we were doing immediate action drills in Humvees. So you're out in the desert, and your shoot, targets pop up, and you engage the targets. It's like, it's like being mini tank commanders, and you've mm-hmm. got five vehicles, and you've got to maneuver them on the battlefield while they provide cover fire for each other. And it's, it's a little bit chaotic. There's big machine gun shooting. And, and when I was going with him, and I was sitting behind him observing him do this, and every time the shooting would start, he would kind of lock up, right? He'd kind of like lock up. There's so much happening that he wasn't processing it quick enough. And so I, I took a Sharpie magic marker and I, and I, and I wrote down um, on the window in front of his face, I wrote, okay, here's what I want you to do. When, when the shooting starts, I want you to do this. One, relax. Two, look around. Three, make a call. And at that time, I hadn't thought through this stuff as much as I have now because I've been doing it for much longer. But what I was telling him to do was you know, detach from what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and the way you do that is you relax, you look around, and, and then you get on the, the, the radio and you make a call. And you know, the next run, I watched him and I was sitting behind him and I'm looking over his shoulder and once the shooting starts, you can't hear anything. So I'm just, just watching him and I, I see him, the shooting starts and I see him look at the window and I see him take a deep breath and exhale and I was like, okay, he just relaxed and I see his head start to turn and I realize, okay, now he's looking around and, and, and he, that, those two simple items were enough to make him detach from all that chaos, actually assess what is happening and then make a good decision. Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the most important things that you can train a leader to do. Sounds like coaching a jujitsu white belt. First thing you tell them, they're on the ground getting beat on, and they kind of, the first thing you tell them, breathe. Yeah. Just breathe. Yeah. Relax. Until you can do that, then nothing's going to work. Yeah. It's one of those, it's one of those things too. People talk about like breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I would instinctively do, and it's another thing that I would train my guys to do was like, you don't panic on the radio. You don't yell on the radio. You don't scream on the radio. You, no matter what's going on, when you get on the radio, you say, you know, Bruiser 1-6, this is Bruiser over. I mean, that's that's what you do. And in order to do that, you have to relax. <laughs> you, you, so it forces you, if you're not going to sound panicked on the radio, which which if you sound panicked on the radio and, and your team hears it, mm. guess what? You're going to have panic going on. So you have to, it's another, it's another method to detach. So when you hear your voice, getting excited when you you know when you read about lieutenant Callie yelling and you hear about Medina yelling uh, that that you know Callie started yelling likely because Medina was yelling at yep. him mm. and now that's what happens we're just we're just sending that panic through the chain of command and it's it's a horrible horrible thing i think what's fascinating about it is that the parallels even though the scenario you're describing is something that 99% of the people listening 99% of the human beings will never have to deal with because they're never going to be in combat which bullets flying all around them and all of that and yet 
it's easy to forget that the same dynamics are at play in most people's lives in ways that they may be able to recognize in with less extreme uh, consequences. But like when you're a parent and you have your kids going wild and suddenly you find yourself you know, raising your voice and starting to yell at them. We, and not the, because I mean, there's a time and a place. Sometimes it's the right thing to do is to kind of cool them on their stuff in harsh ways. But there's a difference between raising your voice with an intent and raising your voice because you're losing it and you're getting overly emotional and you're getting angry. And kids realize it and they will hear you. They will see how you are losing your stuff. They will see how you are less of a credible presence in their life that they not can count on you that way because you are wrapped in your own emotions and you know they press a little button and you go off sometimes they'll press that button because they enjoy seeing you go off mm-hmm. sometimes they'll press that but you know the, the point is you're not a good leader as a parent at that so, point and it's the same thing i mean uh, my company now we work with businesses mm-hmm. all over the world and it's the same exact thing and i teach the same exact thing if you're starting to get mad at your employee you're starting to get mad at your subordinates if you're starting to get mad at your mm-hmm. boss what should you be doing as a good leader? You yep. should be detaching, taking a step back. I've told people, hey, if you start feeling that way, you stand up from the meeting table. Just, just you know, no yep. one's going to say, hey, what are you doing? You just, you know, stand up, stretch out, step back away. People are having a heated argument and you start getting involved in it. Instead of getting involved in it, take a step back. By the way, when you do that, you look like a tactical genius because everyone else is starting to lose their temper. Yep. They're starting to say things that they shouldn't say. And you're the one that's uh, li- listening. <laughs> I just, just covered a book. Um, and, and just, just like a little thing is if, if there's, if you're talking, I'm going to let you talk. Cause if I let you talk, I know twice as much as you, I know everything that you know, and I know everything that I know. So I'm going to win that tactical situation. Um, I want to come back to what you were just saying, Daniel, about leadership as a parent. Yeah. It, it ties into something he was, um, talking about a few minutes ago with like a police officer who's panicking. We were mentioning this on the car ride over here about police shootings, like more often than not, what you see is that they're the result of incompetence. They're the result of um, a socially inept cop who can't manage the situation. And it's not an easy situation to manage. You've got a potentially dangerous person. You don't know them. And maybe they're lightly resisting you just verbally. And you've got to take control of that situation. Well, unless you're an exceptionally competent and confident person, Maybe the only tool you have to bring that person under control is your baton or whatever it is. And um, you get the impression in Vietnam, especially once you get up to 68, 69, where, you know, they're starting to just throw junior officers in right out of, you know, ROTC and just throwing them into combat. And you hear uh, stories about. You know, officers getting fragged. You start to hear stories you, about you know Cali washed out of OCS three three times, times right? right? And you, uh, you you get these people now into a situation where you have a military unit that recognizes their incompetent leadership, and they're scared. They feel incompetent themselves as a unit, um, and you get them into a place where. Uh, and, and maybe this is something that you can contrast really well because you dealt you led primarily uh, SEALs and Marines, right? Well, SEALs. Okay, yeah, just SEALs. Yeah. You, and you worked a lot with Marines. We worked so. a lot with Marines and Army soldiers as and, well, and, yeah. Okay, yeah. And Actually, mostly. There's one battalion of Marines in inside Ramadi. Okay. The 3-8 Marines. Awesome. When, when, when you're dealing with uh, the American military today, and, and I know, I mean, um, this is something that gets lost on a lot of people, is that uh, as highly trained and motivated and all those things as our special forces are, um, you know, they're very specialized. You guys are, you know, trained for very, very specific intense missions and stuff but you go pull an average ranger or marine or something or or infantryman uh 
you put them in combat with good leadership, and that is a an unbelievably effective soldier. I mean, American soldiers today are all volunteer force. These are incredibly well trained and motivated people. If you you know if they have the proper leadership, uh, when when you get back into a situation like that with Vietnam, where you get a whole unit in that situation that that cops in, where they're in maybe a village. They don't exactly know how to handle this situation without resorting to lethal force. And they start to feel threatened and everything runs off the rails. You know, it's, it's unrealistic to expect just like, uh, you know, you're a happily married man and you don't want to cheat on your wife. Then when you're off on a business trip, uh, after you've had a few drinks with the coworker that's on travel with you, um, it seems innocuous. Maybe it's totally innocent at the time. Don't go upstairs to the hotel to watch a movie because if you get to that point, you're just putting yourself in a terrible position, right? And, uh, and in, a, in that military context, the idea that all of the built-up momentum behind something like Me Lai, the idea that you're going to get right up to that moment on March 16, 1968, where the only thing that's stopping it from happening is a few pounds of trigger pull. That's the last bit of, you know, that's your last opportunity to avert this catastrophe is just that few pounds of trigger pull. Good luck with that. You know, that's something that you can't let it get to that point. And, and, and that was something that, uh, and then I'll let you guys take it over, but I wanted to talk about something that it, it was fascinating to me that you picked up on. As soon as I said the word established dominance on the streets of Ramadi, you reacted against that. And you're right. That's incredibly important. And it ties into what you were just talking about, about you would make people uh, either back away from the situation or stop looking down the sights of their gun. Because when you're looking at a person down the sights of your gun, it's your framing of the situation. And you haven't put down their gun, and now it's just a person. It's not a target. It's not anything like that. Uh, if you've got a bunch of people going into Ramadi, and they're thinking in terms of our job is to go establish dominance on the streets of this city, well, you're framing that in a way that, under the right circumstances, could uh, you know lead to trouble. Yeah. And so, framing it seems like is what you're talking about. And and I also want to make it perfectly clear that if the soldiers, Marines, SEALs that we worked with in the Battle of Ramadi, if they didn't dominate the street as we moved down it, you know, we would be just be oh, we'd be killed. So there is the job is even harder than I made it out to say to be because I don't I, I wouldn't want to use the word dominate the city of Ramadi, but you're damn right. We're going to dominate the space that we go into and we're going to do that by being very, very aggressive. Mm. And so there is this fine line. And, and by the way, you'd go into a you'd kick a kick a door in in Ramadi and there's there's gunfire in the street that you're on. You'd kick in a door and there would be. Um, a mom and a dad and a couple kids and there'd be a normal household with green grass and a soccer balls and That would happen that that's what the city was filled with and so the the fact that these guys You know were able to flip that switch over and over and over again was was amazing and it's a it's a testament to to the military forces that we have and to the leadership I want to give equal credit to both but to your point about Hey, you know, me lie. These were draftees. There was hundreds of thousands of draftees that went over there and did an incredible job. They were well led that stood up when people when when the wrong things were happening. So this was a a horrible scenario. Daniele, let's follow up on that. Then I mean, that's because that's what's the difference? Like what happens? Mm -hmm. Um, 
you didn't get all the psychopaths in the army and round them up into one nope. unit, right? Um, by all accounts, the guys at Milai, uh talked to they, they were the type of people that when the folks back in Kansas heard about what happened, they couldn't believe that little Johnny would ever yeah. do anything like and, that. And same thing at Sand Creek, right? Same thing. And so, because you're right, we were talking about this on the way too. Uh, something today, it is uh, for we have something like Abu Ghraib happens. It's a terrible situation. A lot of bad things went on there. The idea, though, that an entire company of American soldiers would go into an Iraqi village and wipe out 500 innocent people, that is inconceivable today Uh, in the sense that so many things would have to go wrong and break down and degrade and degenerate in the American military for that to have happened that it's just it seems like a completely different moral universe. And well- you look at what the chain of events that led to me lie. It, it was those. And, and if any of those chain of events, any, anywhere along that chain of events could have broken that whole chain. You know, mm. Lieutenant Callie could have gotten killed when the minefield. And now you could add someone else came in that was a better leader and didn't have a Napoleon complex and was able to stand up morally to other people. There's, there's so many things that could have changed on that, you know, that could have changed that whole scenario. The most the most powerful one being a different leader. Same thing at Sand Creek. Different leader that yeah. that actually never would have happened. Right. Absolutely. Never would have happened. Yeah. And in fact, and you do see that. that you know, you see all the guys under Silas Soul, like unanimously, they all agree with him. Whereas all the guys with Chivington, unanimous. It's like clearly there's a leadership element where the average guy in those units is heavily influenced by who's setting an example for them. And that is one of the things that interests me about human nature that, you know, one of the things, because we're discussing, like, does that mean that human being, you know, one of the things you hear a lot is are human beings just evil by nature? And it's like, no, they're not evil. The majority of people are not. There are, of course, the exceptions. There is that whatever small percentage, but the majority of human beings are not evil. The problem is that the majority of human beings are extremely easily influenced, like their moral compass can range in so many different directions that under right leadership, they will be awesome human beings. Under wrong leadership, it's not that hard for them to start sliding down a really dark direction. So to me, it kind of is a matter of weakness more than evil. You know, it's not that these guys are complete psychopaths where, you know, you have dinner with them and they are nice people and they help the old lady cross the street. And yet the degree, while they may have good intentions, Good intentions don't go too far without crazy discipline, strong willpower, a lot of the qualities that allow you to keep those good intentions real under heavy emotional pressure where it doesn't all fly out the window and it's like, I don't know what happened, I just lost my mind, or hey, they told me that this was the thing to do and so I just followed orders. You know, where you have that integrity to stay present in a crazy situation. You're asking human beings to be kind of extraordinary in those circumstances because the ordinary human being may go down a bad path. So the, the antidote in some way seemed to be to make yourself extraordinary, to be, to be able to withstand that kind of situation. And that's where a great leader makes a huge difference because so many people will be like flags in the wind. You know, If the wind is tilting one way, they will go with it. If the wind is tilting heavily the other way, they'll also go that route. And, and so that's what interests me is because while... A few humans will always choose a pretty messed up evil side. 
a bunch of humans can go either way, what is that shape, the kind of human beings that will be able to be a great leader, or even just for themselves, even if they are they have nobody under them, just they will make choices that in an ideal scenario most human beings would want to make. What does separate the guy who, you know, is sitting there on, on the couch saying, oh, I would be that guy, and the guy who actually is that guy? I think one of the difficulties with that um, is, Jocko, you and Jordan Peterson talked about this in um, your podcast together. Um, you were talking about the book Ordinary Men and how, uh, you know, you've got a couple guys, a group of guys there who are going to, who are being ordered to do something that's grotesque. And it's not simply a matter of like, you know, that's a real good situation of let's say you are a person of mm -hmm. strong moral character of just all the things that you would want him to be. You've got two conflicting moral systems here because you have a duty and obligation to your fellow soldiers who are going to have to go do this one way or another unless you revolt completely. And then you're betraying your country and there's all these other things that are brought into it that, you know, that, that are moral things. These are, you know, it's, yep. it's moral to not want to abandon your friends and your colleagues to have to go do the hard work that has to be done so that you can go nurture your self-righteous sense of personal morality. Or at least that's the type of thinking that might go through a person's head. Mm -hmm. Like, now, what right do I have to put my own personal idea of what's right? ahead of my obligation as a soldier, ahead of what my country is telling me to do, ahead of uh, just being in there with all of my friends and fellow soldiers and, and leaving it to them. Like, that's a moral thing. That, mm -hmm. is, a, that is something that you want people to feel, right? And I, and, I, and I wonder sometimes how much of these situations are filled with people who, um, you know, maybe 90% of them, the, the, the vast majority that aren't those few evil ones, they're all kind of looking at each other like, Maybe inside, they don't necessarily think this is right or, be, or they don't want to be doing this, but they don't want to abandon their friends. And their friends are looking at them thinking the same thing. And you just have this vicious cycle you know, of that course. ends in one of these things. Yeah. And part of the problem there is the human willingness to rationalize and make justifications for oneself. It's like, well, in that, because, you know, when you look at the principles that people hold, like what they believe their philosophy of life is and the way they behave, even in much more ordinary circumstances. I mean, you made the example of the cheating husband, right? How many people seriously believe that monogamy is the right thing and you don't cheat on your spouse? There will be lots and lots and lots of people who say, yeah, of course I believe in it. How many people actually live up to it? And it's like, come on, man, that's not, nobody's shooting at you. Nobody, there are no, it's a much more mellow situation and people in many cases, can't live up to their ideals in very ordinary circumstances, let alone when you start pressing the buttons and when the circumstances are no longer ordinary, but it becomes real panic time and stress and all of that goes up. So to me, it's like you need to have almost a maniacal determination to have this code of conduct that you will hold up no matter what happens. Like I use it as it's a joke, but it's not a joke. Like I use it for daily life as like to me once I have very few moral rules that are absolutes, but the ones that are, there are no exceptions. So for me, like if you give your word to somebody, there are no exceptions. It's like, don't give your word unless you are 110% sure you're going to keep it. Don't. I don't mind. You know, we can have a regular conversation and you don't give your word. But if you do give your word... To me, there is no, oh, sorry, I didn't think in that situation or there was that exception. To me, the only way you apologize 
is a samurai style. You know, you stick a knife in your belly and you slice back and forth. That's how you say sorry. There is no exception to that. It's almost as if uh, you ha- th- that those rules serve as pole stars when you're in a situation that's as chaotic as something like yeah. combat, where you have to have a few rules that, I mean, maybe they're arbitrary, but mm-hmm. you'll die for them. Yep. Because when you're in the midst of a situation that is completely outside the realm of your normal experience, uh, they give you reference points. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they structure the situation a little bit for you. So you're not just lost in chaos. There's some structure to it. And then you can evaluate the rest of the environment relative to those hard and fast rules that you've got. Because in the situation, you know, when you're in Milai and you're one of the people who's kind of on the fence, yeah. but now people are shooting, mm-hmm. that is not the time to have this <laughs> no. argument with yourself. No, like, that's not when you're going to figure it out yeah. for sure. Well, this might sound really obvious, and and it is. It's a very simple, obvious answer to this really, really hard question of, you know, how do you prevent this thing from happening, or who's the kind of person that will stand up? And, and the answer is very is actually quite simple. It's training and education. <laughs> it's training and education, and. If people understand that these kind of things can happen and they get put in these pressure situations and they get trained and they get debriefed on mistakes that they made and they saw that they got emotional and you train them correctly, well, then you've got someone who gets into a me lie situation and and says to themselves, wait a second, we're not getting shot at right now. Cease fire. And, and that was the, the most incredible thing about that story is that's all it took mm-hmm. was one leader mm-hmm. to say, hey, stop killing people. And they, they literally stopped that moment. So training people and, and putting them in these situations and educating them so that they understand, so that they have pattern recognition, training them so that they can learn how to detach, training them so that they can control their emotions, training them that they can see when horrible things are unfolding before them and then how that they they can put a stop to them that is what is important and as you mentioned Daryl as the as the Vietnam War drove on that the training got less and less and the, the officers were getting sent over quicker and quicker and you're getting on the job training and the person that you're getting on on the job training from is a person that's only been doing it for two and a half months longer than you and that's that's how these things occur so you have to invest in 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 people that are going to be in these situations and it's the same thing again I tell this to businesses all the time have you done you know on a construction site have you done a drill if you have a mass casualty what do you know what do you know where you're gonna call in casualty evacuation do you know where you're gonna what the air air flight or uh, life flight number is does anyone have the life flight number here because if someone gets hurt you need to make that call and do you know what station you're gonna call what helicopter you're gonna call do you know where they're gonna land why would you not run those things and if those things unfold and you're not prepared for them, you're going to fall apart. And it's the same thing with these ethical and moral situations where if you don't understand what they are and you don't understand what can go wrong, you're going to have a bad day. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was brilliant what you brought up a little bit ago when you said there are steps along the way that long before the crisis manifests itself, there's that ability to recognize the tiny little steps that are leading there. Now, when you look at that tiny thing, it looks tiny. It doesn't look like a big deal. That's no crisis. That's not a problem. But it's that first step that's taking you down that path. And it's a lot easier to stop it early than when crisis is on. And so in that sense, 
that does become a training. That does become a thing of like, how do you recognize the steps? How do you work on it? And you know, you were saying things like even something as basic, I hey, breathe one second, take one second to breathe before you react. Then think how you want to react. Is the same thing that applies to everything. It applies to conversation when people are people you care about maybe are getting you angry. Do you really want to respond right away or maybe take three seconds to take a breath, then decide how you want to respond, you know? And I think he's, like to me is weird, as, as, as silly as that is because, you know, clearly war and parenting are very far universes in so many ways. But to me has been one of the, well, depending <laughs> on your kids, I guess. I got four kids. But, right. <laughs> Get some. But I guess to me has been one of the most unforgiving mirrors that I, that I ever had put in front of me was seeing how I react under extreme stress when you haven't slept for two days, when somebody's throwing a fit that's completely unjustified, when, and suddenly it's like, yeah, you have all the good reasons to be mad, but really this is how you respond? This is how you react to a four-year-old kid who's just being a four-year-old kid and you get all emotional and you start yelling? And suddenly like 10 seconds seem to me blow it up, I see myself from the outside and I'm like, I'm everything that I despise in this moment. You know, that man right there that's responding that way has all the reasons, has all the, I can see why, doesn't matter, you still don't do it, you know? And rather than just being like, okay, let's weep myself, I'm a horrible human being, I discovered that, it's like, okay, what can I do not to get here next time? You, you got real world training, right? Because now you recognize the situation and now you uh-huh. don't let it happen anymore. Exactly. You know, I had, I was talking to you guys earlier we, I hit it my first deployment to Iraq. We went and hit a target and and it sounds almost like you know Like what you'd imagine in a movie we'd get handed a map and on the map It'd be a city block in Baghdad and there'd be a red X on one of the buildings and That's all I needed. Oh, you want me to go hit that red X cool. We'll go hit that red X and One night we went and hit you know the building with the red X on it and when we hit the target, it was, you know, like the, the most normal family you could ever imagine. And as we started talking to them and we had our interpreter get in there and figure out, you know, hey, do you know who this person is? They're like, yeah, he lives two doors down. <laughs> oh, okay. And so then I went back and eventually s- said to myself a question that if I wasn't, if I had more experience, I would have asked this question for you. I said, hey, I got a question. Who put that red X on that building and why? Right. And as I pulled the string on it, it, you know, it was one of those things where they had gotten some intel, which, you know, I won't talk about where it came from, but it was it was intel that, you know, put it in that general vicinity and they like picked the, the center of the general vicinity. There's the center of the general vicinity there. We'll put the X and no follow up. And so I always taught that as something. Hey, guys, make sure you know who's giving you this intelligence. And that's that's the case that happened to me. Lie where the, the person on the no one, no one at the platoon level said, hey, ho- hold on a second. Who's who's confirming that this is 100% VC in this village? You're telling me this is 100% VC in this village? That's what we're saying right now? Who's, t- who's saying that? I want to talk to that person. And th- that's another thing I talk about all the time is you don't, as a leader, you don't want to be surrounded by yes men. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be surrounded by yes men. And you know, we're talking about the horrors of Vietnam War, and I'm reading another book right now, and there's a platoon commander and his guys are going, they're, they're rotating between three locations. And two of the locations are not too bad. The other location is a nightmare. It's, it's, it's Vietnam War stereotypical. It's booby traps, snipers, and indirect fire. 
they never see the enemy they, they just never mm. see the enemy and all they do is they go out there on patrol they get blown up they get shot they get mortared and they never see the enemy and the, the guys are getting wounded or killed and as you think about that I I would I would pray that if I was the company commander or the battalion commander that that platoon commander would come to me and say hey Jocko this is stupid let me tell you how many people we've lost let me tell you how many other the platoons have lost and let me tell you what we've gotten out of it we've got nothing out of it and we sh- we need to stop this or we need to find a better way to do it if you want to send us in there let us set up a strong point let us set up a, a bunkered position we'll stay and we'll observe but us just walking around in there waiting to get blown up makes no sense whatsoever please let's do something else and as a leader you have to have the open mind to say okay I, I, I thank you I appreciate that feedback what are your suggestions you've been in the area of operations how do you recommend we do it and whenever I hear these stories of guys that get put in really terrible situations in the military it it, it sickens my heart because what you need is a culture inside any organization the military yes but any organization of people to raise their hands and say hey wait a second this is stupid Hey, wait a second. Do I not see an American flag on that Indian reservation with a white peace flag underneath it? And wait, wait, hold on, stop. Why, wait, wait, stop. And that takes moral courage. It takes training. Mm-hmm. And it takes a culture inside an organization to stop people and question what they're doing. And it takes that certain level of detachment that you were talking it about. It absolutely because, takes detachment. You know, it's like uh, you were saying about like dealing with a four year old mm-hmm. or something. Like when you're in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. It seems normal. It seems like the way to behave. And it's only when you step back Mm -hmm. and say, you know, uh, one of the things about human beings, our great strength, I suppose, is that we're supremely adaptable creatures. I was talking to um, a psychologist one time who used to work for the State Department. He would uh, he worked in Africa for a while. He talked about he was telling me some of the stuff that he would encounter whole villages um, where every woman had been raped. Ten times uh, over the years where kids in this village had watched their parents kill. Just horrifying stuff. And my question uh, to him at the time, because he was a psychologist, uh, was, I mean, how are, are, are these people not just completely blown out with PTSD and everything else? Like, how are they functional at all, given what we know about PTSD and how it does function under circumstances that are far less severe than that? And that's what he said. He said, you'd be surprised. Humans are very, very adaptable. And to them, this is their environment. And that can work the other way, too, though. You know, that can work in the direction of uh, in the new uh, Ken Burns Vietnam documentary, which is just I don't know if you've watched it yet. I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but I watched uh, the probably I think the first two episodes. Okay, so um, one of the ones you're coming up on. Uh, the name of it is This Is What We Do. And it starts out talking about uh, this guy, new recruit, and he shows up to this place. And, like, the first thing he sees when he gets to uh, the base that he's at, it's not a massacre or anything like that. But it's just sort of, a you know, a Vietnamese prisoner or, or a captive uh, being led along by, you know, a corporal or something. And he's just being rough with him and kind of pushing him along and, and doing stuff that clearly is outside of regulations. And this new guy shows up and he's like, hey, hey, hey like, uh, you're supposed to be doing that or whatever it is. And the first thing he hears when he gets over there is, kid, this is Vietnam. This is what we do. And he said that the whole rest of the time that he was there, when he saw something he didn't like, when he was doing things that he wasn't sure about, he just repeated in his head, this is Vietnam. This is what we do. This is what we do. And after a while, he didn't have to repeat it anymore. 
After a while, that was his environment. And, you know, it, it, it reminds me, I used to have these recurring dreams. I probably shouldn't share this on the air, but um, I used to have these recurring dreams. I still have them every once in a while. Uh, the details and the setting differ, but um, it'll be something like um, the dream starts and I'm in like a helicopter, say, and I'm flying around like a city like L.A. or wherever, and I'm just shooting people like Grand Theft Auto. It's just like a video game. Da, 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 da. And I'm going through and I'm doing all this. Sometimes there's people down there I know, my friends and stuff, and it's just all – it seems just like I'm in a video game. And then the way the dream goes is at a certain point after a few minutes of this, all of a sudden it hits me what I'm doing. And I look around and I it's almost as if I wake up in the dream and I'm like, oh, my God, like I'm killing all these people. What what am I doing? But at the time, it was completely normal. It seemed exactly like this is just what I should be doing or anything like that. And that's something I think that is. Well, it's why you told people stop looking down the barrel of your gun. You know, you got to step back and, and be able to get that distance so you can change your frame. And again, with the proper training. And the proper education you will know as a leader that that behavior will escalate. That behavior will escalate, and if you allow it to happen, it will continue to get worse. And so it starts off, and I, I've read all kinds of books about, about Vietnam, especially about Vietnam, where it, it starts off. It starts off with, hey, the villagers are, we, we kind of know them, everything's cool, give them lollipops. But then, you know, one of our guys dies, and then, well, we're not getting lollipops. As a matter of fact, we're, we're kicking the kids away. And, and it, it only escalates to there, and it escalates to murder, and, and it escalates, or it, I should say this, it can escalate. It doesn't automatically escalate, because all it takes is someone to step in and say, hey, no, that's across the line. Like, you know what? You want to slap a guy? I get it. I get it. But that's the line. Anything, once, you know, one thing that we used to say, and I used to tell my guys, once the cuffs are on somebody, so once we get somebody zip tied, it's over. Like you do what you got to do to get a guy under control. Once they're zip tied, it's done. And and now they're you, they're they're getting taken care of, and you you treat them firm but fair. That's it. And so those lines, you you have to draw them and you have to hold the line as a leader because things start to escalate. You know, it's the thing that you were asking me about earlier about the the, the Chechen war and the Russians against the Chechens, and it's. It, they didn't they didn't hold the line with the little things and the, when you lose that discipline even at on the smaller things well eventually Then you don't have the discipline on the bigger things Can you go overboard with that? Yes, you can I can hold the discipline so hard on the little things that no one listens to me on the big things That's why leadership is hard because there's a dichotomy there that you have to balance you can't be freaked out because you know You didn't you didn't blouse your boots when you were supposed to but at the same time if I start to let too many things slide, well, it, it, it will escalate. And it seems like maybe with things like that, uh, a lot of people uh, who are civilians, they they laugh when they see in movies or uh, you know TV shows or something about how soldiers in combat are still expected to groom themselves. They're still expected to take care of themselves and comport themselves in a military way. And what I tell them a lot of the times is, and maybe you can confirm this because I don't really know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> it, it is that. Uh, you know, my, my feeling on, uh, on, on why that stuff is so important is that you can't have, uh, you know, you can't have Iraq and the sectarian war and all the stuff, the storm that's going on around them. You can't have that become the environment to which they're adapting. The environment to which they need to be well adapted is the U.S. military. 
that's their environment. That's what they're focused on, following these rules and behaving in this way. And then when that's their environment, they can go into these places and do their jobs. If they get in there and they start reacting to what's going on around them, because, I mean, you, you, then you can tell a guy. He's uh, talking about going native, right? Yeah. You can't go native. You yeah. Know, once, uh, that's that's you, apocalypse now, because right? you can right. tell a guy uh, once the cuffs are on. Uh, but, you know, if, if I was talking to a family yesterday and this is the guy that just cut their heads off, well, I mean – you know, you you can't have you can't put yourself in a situation because it does make sense to beat the shit out of that guy. It does make sense to put a bullet in his head when the cuffs are on, like from a even from a moral standpoint in certain ways. Like you can justify that, you know. Um, and so that's why you can't be reacting to whatever it is that's going on. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, and there's actually an interesting dichotomy there as well, because you you need to follow the rules right because if i told if the three of us decided hey we're going to go on this village raid and we're all going to use our morals as our guide well we have three different scenarios Mm -hmm. you're you just admitted that you'd be executing somebody that was already handcuffed uh who knows what you'd be doing Uh, you know i don't even (laughs) want to know right so so we we're all over the map right mm-hmm. maybe you're maybe you're saying you're you're not even gonna don't even want to handcuff anyone because you think that's too offensive and i'm somewhere in the middle Wh- whatever the case may be we're all over the map so i would always tell the guys look you need to do what is legal what's what's legal but then the, the paradox of that is sometimes what you can get away with legally still isn't the right thing to do and that's again that's why there's a dichotomy between those two between do i follow the rules exactly or i, I mean you know look at look at me lie look at sand creek i that my boss told me to shoot this guy mm-hmm. show told me to shoot this three-year-old baby my boss told me to do that mm-hmm. i'm am i should i be following orders is there a threat that i don't know about you know these days uh, you know i've heard a lot of stories now the guys that that took down mosul right the the enemy was sending surrendering children to come and surrender to coalition forces and they would be strapped with uh, IED vests, suicide vests. And over and over and over again, it was our U.S. military, you know, especially our, our explosive ordnance disposal folks and the, that were going and disarming these bombs on these kids. But, yeah, how do you feel after you see two or three of those little kids get killed plus two or three EOD guys get killed and now you're going to fight those guys and they want to surrender. That's a very challenging thing. Mm-hmm. And if you don't maintain discipline, it's a slippery slope. And it's funny because we're saying two things at the same time, which sound contradictory and yet that's life. That on one end, you need to have these super strict rules that you're not going to bend under any circumstances. And on the other hand, the thing that you rightly point out is the fact that real leadership is also the ability to think on your feet and no two situations are alike. So the rule-following approach, while it may save you from some of the worst abuses, is not always necessarily the right thing. And there is also the time when we almost follow the rules, except when we don't, because that's the one time when it's correct. And that ability to make the right call at the right time, that's what makes... Yeah, an extraordinary well, human being. When we're just sort of in debates or popping off at the mouth today, we, we sort of take for granted that the whole um, I was just following orders question was settled at Nuremberg. It was not settled at all. That's an incredibly mm-hmm. complicated question for just the reason you were describing. You know, uh, somebody who worked at a Nazi death camp um, 
you know, they didn't make 10,000 independent decisions to kill somebody. Uh, they made one decision that their own personal moral compass was going to get outsourced to the state and that they were going to do their duty and follow their orders. They made that decision once. And now once you've made that decision and you've outsourced your moral compass, which, again, under most circumstances, that might be the thing that keeps you from doing the wrong thing. That might be the thing that mm-hmm. keeps me from executing that, you know, Al Qaeda guy. But when the institutions themselves start to get warped or if you're in even even if the institution is an individual unit or something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's uh, I can't remember where I heard it. But there's uh, some zoologist or somebody who pointed out to him that uh, like he had asked why zebras have black and white stripes when the grass is gold colored mm-hmm. and yellow and they don't blend into that at all. Clearly, tigers can see that. And he pointed out to him that that camouflage isn't to blend into the environment. That camouflage is to blend in with each other. They blend with the herd. And so the tigers have a difficult time tracking down like and focusing on an individual. And uh, they oh, they figured that out because they wanted to try to you know put ear clips on them or something to track these things around. But they noticed every time they put something identifiable on one of them, the tigers would kill it. And it was because now they had something to focus on. And so and, and that's. You know, I'm not making a, a literal evolutionary comparison here, but there's an interesting, like, just sort of analogy, which is this instinct to blend in with the herd. There's just there's safety there. There's a mm-hmm. sense of security there, and there's there's virtue in forfeiting a certain amount of your personal judgment to the group to which you have obligations. That's a good thing under most circumstances. You know, and at least in a lot of circumstances. You know, that's what duty is. That's what. Um, you know, just fulfilling your obligations to your people or you, you, you know, your unit or something. Like, who are you, especially if you're an 18-year-old kid mm-hmm. who just got out of high school and you're over there and you're in a situation where you've got, you know, like in Milai, you've got officers, you've got, uh, you know, not just your immediate officer, but it seems to be being reinforced by your captain above, you know, your company commander. Um, at the time in Milai, there was a there was a major general in a helicopter observing buzzing around that place. And so, you know, you're in a situation where you say to yourself, like, who am I to say that what's going on here is wrong? It seems wrong to me because of what I learned from my mama or whatever. But you know, what, what does that mean? Like, I've got a captain. I've got a lieutenant. I've got my sergeants. Mm-hmm. I've got this major general in the air. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this, you know, I just got here four months ago. This was my, this is uh Charlie Company's first major combat operation. They really hadn't made contact, direct combat with the enemy. Uh, and it's the first time any of them have seen combat for the most part. And I think it's uh, um, there's certainly a certain amount of weakness that's involved, mm-hmm. like you were talking about. But I also think there's a certain amount of moral confusion that yeah, happens. Of and, and that's that's there can't be that kind of confusion like that is where leadership has got to take over. Well, I can add another layer of complexity to this. Okay, so so first of all, I, I do think that the, well, Napoleon said, if you execute an order that you know is wrong, and it, when he was talking about it, he's not talking about something immoral. He's talking about if I do something where a bunch of my men get killed because mm-hmm. the general said to do it, and I do it, I'm culpable. So that's that's pretty clear, that if your boss tells you to do something that you know is going to, in Napoleon's case, it was get a bunch of your guys killed, then, then you say no. And if you do it, you're culpable for what happens. You could say the same thing. If, if I get told to do something that's morally or ethically wrong and I do it, well, guess what? Then I'm responsible for that. What, what becomes a little bit complicated to me uh, or adds another layer of complexity is this. 
if I'm going to Sand Creek and I'm with Chivington and he or Chivington and he says, um, "Hey, we're going to go there and we're going to execute this and we're 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 going to kill these guys. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to conduct a raid." And I don't believe in it. Okay, so I say, you know what? I don't believe in it. I don't think it's the right thing to do. I think that we've made enough peace with them. We've caused enough problems. That's their land. I'm not going. Okay, so now you don't go because you didn't believe in the mission. Well, now who's out there conducting the mission? Everyone that's going out there to conduct the mission is people that are compliant with what he's saying. Mm-hmm. So you would be you would be morally a better person if you said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this because if I don't, I know it's going to be someone that's totally compliant mm-hmm. with Shivington. And I'd rather be there to at least spare some of the people, mm-hmm. which we know people did. And... So there's there's a little complexity. You know, I talk about this in the business world mm-hmm. too. People say, you know, my boss told me to do this, and and I I think it's a bad idea, and I don't think we should do it. Okay, so are you going to get put off the project? Are you going to get pulled to a different a different department right. where you no longer can take care? Because you, you this is too hard on my people. I'm not, I refuse to do this. Okay, that's fine. You refuse to do this. I'll put someone in there that won't refuse, and you no longer can protect your people, yep. and your people are in a worse situation. Yep. So. You know, the whole organization is degraded. The whole organization. So you raise your hand, you make your protest, but sometimes you've got to say, okay, I've made my protest and I understand that you're still wanting me to do this. And even though I think it's the wrong thing to do, I'm going to proceed down the path because I'd rather me be able to mitigate as much of this problem as I can than have somebody that's just going to do, do, do this to the fullest extent that you would want them to do. Yep. So there's another additional yeah. complexity there mm. that it gets involved. Absolutely, because sometimes, as you said, just denying, you're just making yourself feel better, but the reality is that plan is going to go ahead. You are the only thing that stands in the way of that plan going to the 100 percentile. You can bring it down to 50, you know. Mm-hmm. It's still going to feel ugly. You're still going to feel part of something you don't want to be part of. But the only thing you do by refusing is patting yourself on the back and say, am I not a moral guy? It's like, <laughs> yeah, but no, because, you know, it's like the thing is you can use that power in that situation to for something that is better than if you just uh, look at yourself in the mirror saying how great you are by not doing it. And mm-hmm. in fact, that's what was pretty incredible about the Sun Creek story. Yep. Silas Soul, you know, they, he's told right before you don't want stay home you know nobody's forcing you just stay home don't be part of it and Saul and Kramer and some of those guys say no we want to be there we want to be there to observe to be able to make the choice on the spot and uh, and it makes a huge difference right there my feeling on it just sort of looking at it all from the outside is that especially in a counterinsurgency war that without strict military discipline and strong leadership that abject savagery is gravity will take you there. That's where things will head on their own unless you um, are supremely focused on discipline and leadership and education and those kind of things that you don't have to you don't really have to ask the question, how can this kind of thing happen? The real question is, how does this not happen (laughs) all the time? Right. How is it that American soldiers in Iraq and, uh, you you know, you go into Iraq and they're seeing uh, Maybe maybe husbands and fathers that they spoke to the previous day that they know are innocent, and not part of the fighting. And they see his wife beheaded and him with a power drill hole in the side of his head. How are American soldiers not 
going and executing reprisal attacks against these people all the time? How is it not just completely getting out of hand? And like that to me is by far the more interesting question. I don't have to ask myself, how is it that, you know, somebody went and, 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 and shot up, you know, the, the, the house of the person who did something like that. That's an easy question to answer. And, and the, the much more interesting one is how it doesn't happen all the time. And it, it seems like it's, it has to be institutional. It can't come down to like, uh, you know, institutional culture, right? Um, relating it to their sense of, of, of personal identity and social identity with the group, that this is not who we are. Um, that if I do this, it's not going to win me any, uh, any kudos from my teammates or anything like that. They're going to look at that as a betrayal because I'm bringing dishonor upon us because this is not what we're about. And they have to be able to look at it that way. And if they don't know that, if they don't know that, uh, by doing something like that, they're going to, uh, you know, they want to blend in with the group. They want to be accepted by the group. They want to be looked at as somebody that can be relied on. And that has to mean following the rules and doing the right thing. It- yeah, well, D- Daniela, you put, pointed this out earlier. You you said, well, this seems like it's just the communications aspect is so important, and, and that's 100% right. So as we all know, the, the strategy in the Vietnam War for America was to kill more of them than they did of us and drop more bombs on them and eventually they'll just break just a war of attrition and and so the the strategy was get rack up as many kill count as high kill count as you possibly can so that's the messaging Mm -hmm. that's the messaging so when that's the messaging that's the messaging (laughs) in in iraq they were very clear about hey we're here to we're we're not an occupying force. We're here to liberate these people. We're here to secure the populace and make sure that they can have a free country. That's the messaging. So does that messaging always make it down to the front lines? No. That's why we do have incidents where, thing, you know, bad, horrible things happen. Absolutely. But it is about the messaging and it is about everyone understanding why they're doing what they're doing, what their mission is, what is what is right and what is wrong and you can be educated on that legally hey you're not allowed to do this you can do that but you can't do this and then the other point that you made which is well you said you got to be able to manage people in a time of crisis as a leader but more important and you you actually you, you actually asked a really complicated question and then answered it yourself and you did that like three times in that <laughs> <Sorry>. one <laughs> sphere of conversation that you had with yourself this is uh, caffeine, I'm yeah yeah is is you said you know you got to be able to manage people in these pressure situations and then you added that but what you really need is culture and you're right because you're not going to be there the leader is not i wasn't with my all my elements on the battlefield all the time they were out there all the time without me all the time without me they were the ones that had to understand what they could and what they couldn't do they were the ones that had to make those hard decisions they weren't calling my snipers didn't call back to me and say hey jocko i see this with this guy they didn't even ask their platoon commanders that they didn't ask anyone they knew what the rules of engagement were they knew what our strategy was they understood and one of the things that I told them, you know, speaking of rules of engagement, so our rules of engagement was, you know, several page legalese document written by some lawyers in Washington, D.C. or wherever. And, you know, I've got kids in my platoon that are 20, 21, 22 years old, you know, high school graduate, and they came in the SEAL teams like I did, by the way. 
And so they're looking at a legal document like that. That doesn't, doesn't mean anything to them. Sure. You know, my rules of engagement for them was very simple. Make sure the people you're killing are bad. You make sure the people you're killing are bad. And why? And then I, I explained to them why that was important. And the reason why that was important was because the day that some civilians brought a headless body that it had taken a 300 wind mag round to the head and their head was gone and they said this was our imam or this was our school teacher or this was our neighborhood doctor and one of your snipers killed them and they would figure out it was us first of all our operations would get shut down so selfishly we don't want to get our operations shut down but more important than the selfish reason if that happened we would leave all the soldiers and Marines that we were working with on a daily basis that we were providing overwatch for we'd leave them without the support that we had committed to give them because we weren't allowed to operate anymore because we weren't being discriminatory enough with our fire so the culture is so important people understanding why they're doing what they're doing is so important and if you don't get that messaging into your point Danielle if you don't get the communication correct then you're gonna end up in a world of hurt and the point you just made the make sure the people you kill are bad is such a think about it there are so few words right you say it in like very very few words and yet it's so central because you look at not only Sun Creek or Milai, but look at even like half of the, you know, when the Nazis invade the, the Soviet Union and then when the Red Army does the counter and they start invading Germany, both armies do horrible things to one another civilian. And the idea is, well, the Nazis did it to our people, so we did it to theirs. Well, that mom that you are shooting in the head, that had, she had nothing to do with what happened to your people. She's not. She's not the Nazi soldier who did it. She's not the bad one just because she's from the same nation. Are you kidding me? That's not, that doesn't make her the bad person. And I think that's part of the problem with group identity. That's so often, that's why stereotypes are dangerous because you start grouping individuals into this mental category you may have of like, those guys are bad. That individual only share some physical characteristic with the other one. They share, maybe they are even related, but they are not the same person. You know, they, are, they haven't made the same choices. They haven't committed the same action. So the fact that you treat all the Cheyenne the same, or you decide you treat all the Vietnamese the same, or all the Germans the same, or all the Russians, that's where everything goes wrong because you are not making sure that the person you're hurting is the bad one, is not the one. There's no revenge there. They are not the same people. And so, and yet it happens over and over again where people fall into this idea of group mentalities. Well, I couldn't catch that guy, but he's one of their group. It's like, no, man, there are individuals that are involved. There are not, there's no collective guilt of, it's kind of the same reason why, for example, terrorism strike us as so awful in every possible way, because you're not going against the guy that you have a grievance against. You're going against the guy from the same nation. It's like, that has nothing to do with one another, you know, there. I feel like sometimes group identity, it's one of those double-edged uh -huh. swords, right? Because on one hand, there's the side of it that we mentioned earlier. Maybe your uh, loyalty to your group and not wanting to bring dishonor upon them, if that's the culture, uh -huh. is what keeps you from putting a bullet in the head of the guy you just cuffed, right? Sure. Um, you might be able to appeal to... Uh, um, 
you know, you can say to people, hey, we're Americans Mm -hmm. and this is not how we behave. And you're appealing to their group identity there, you know, and uh, that. No, but I get it. It's a double edged sword. But that is a case in which you are using group identities for as the good guys. And, and granted, yeah, it may not be that every single one from that country really fit that idea, but you're putting a nice ideal and you're encouraging people to live up to it. That's already different from, while it's similar in dynamics to them, the bad guys, and plugging everyone into that group where, do you know that that person really fit that stereotype that you have of that group? How did you make clear to your men uh, when you said, you know, make sure the people you're killing are bad? that they understood what was meant by that it is well there's first of all there there are specifics in the rules of engagement and one of them is clear hostile intent hostile actor hostile intent which means this person has to be doing something actively that's gonna cause cause a negative impact now you can tell which people are bad you can tell when they're starting to do something that's hostile act or hostile intent. You, you can tell. And these guys, you know, my guys would, they, they knew they would err on the side of like, I'm going to make sure that this person is doing something bad. But, you know, we had some decent uh, arguments about the rules of engagement. I had some decent arguments about the rules of engagement up the chain of command because the rules of engagement were applying to all of Iraq. And Ramadi was not like the rest of Iraq mm-hmm. at this time in 2006. And, you know, if you've got someone that is, for instance, observing a location with binoculars, right? If you're observing, if you're in Baghdad and you're look, looking at a location with binoculars, you're gathering intelligence, which is, which, which could be considered, which is not considered a hostile act. It's, it's, it's the intelligence gathering. You might suspect the person being bad, but there's, there's no way to prove that. Mm-hmm. In Ramadi, if you saw somebody that was looking with binoculars at friendly forces, they weren't gathering intelligence. They were absolutely coordinating attack mm-hmm. and attack. And that is a gr- that is a big difference because that is a hostile act and it's damn sure hostile intent. And so, you know, those are the kind of things that I would discuss up the chain of command and w- we would provide them the resources. You know, it's I, I talk a lot about um, playing the game, right? Like if my boss tells me to do something, I'm going to play the game, I'm going to, I'm going to try and do it. And, and, and occasionally I'll get the question of like, well, what if you get told to do something that you really don't want to do? What if you got told to do something that you didn't, that you were opposed to, right? What if you got the order to go to the Milai massacre and you got the order? Well, yeah, I'd say no. I'd say no. And f- first of all, that doesn't happen. The closest, the closest example I have to that happening was for me in Ramadi, we had been told that we had to take a certain number of Iraqi soldiers with us on every operation we conducted because we were trying to turn the war over to them. And so they needed to get out there and do operations. And uh, they, they were telling us, they were putting this, this rule all over every American unit in Iraq. You needed to have an Iraqi face on every operation. So what did the Americans do? What did, what did the American units do? What they did was they say, okay, yeah, we're going to take our platoon of 40 guys and we're going to take two Iraqis with us and there's your Iraqi face. Well, that doesn't move the, the war forward. They were obeying the rules. Sure. So the, the senior leadership figured this out and said, no, you guys are playing games. He, here's the new rule. For every, and I forget what the number was, they made a ratio. For every seven Americans yeah. that you have, or for every 
one American you have to have you have you have to have seven Iraqis or there was some number some ratio and in Ramadi some of the units of Iraqis that we were working with only had 18 guys or 17 guys and so that would have meant me sending my guys in the field with two or three seals only which sending if you've got a if you're gonna go into a bad area and you're gonna who are you gonna send because you want to have a radioman you want to have a medic you want to have a guy that can call for fires you want to have a leader and you want to have a couple heavy mm-hmm. heavy weapons guys that's that's six or seven guys right there minimum right and so when the chain of command told me hey you got to do this ratio I looked at the ratio and, then, and I said hey guys uh, in Ramadi that's that's not a good idea and here's why I'm not gonna send my guys in the field without a corpsman or without a radioman or without a JTAC or without a machine gunner I'm not I'm not gonna do that and you know what they said they said that makes sense, Jocko. You proceed. <laughs> like, if you articulate yourself correctly, yeah. then you can get your point across. Now, had they said to me, "Hey, listen, no, you're only allowed to do this," well, then I would have objected further up the chain of command, and I would not have put my guys at risk to do something that didn't make sense. Yeah, of course, not, not going to do it. Um, and and again, that's what I always encourage military people but not just military people business people well if you're the CEO of a company mm-hmm. and you've given some directive that you don't understand the full depth of the directive that you've given and your front line somebody somebody in your front lines realizes that's gonna have a hugely negative impact on your company do you want them just to follow orders right. you absolutely don't want them to follow orders. you want them to raise their hand and say hey boss this doesn't make sense and the thing that you said about, yeah, you don't want to surround yourself with yes men, which makes perfect sense. Then again, it's it's one of the things where you really need to have work on yourself because the reality is that most people have an ego. Most people don't like to be told, hey, boss, sorry, but that doesn't sound right. It's like, what do you mean? You know, there's that reaction. It's like stung in their pride, which, of course, that's where all bad decision making start going. But it's a very normal reaction, you know what I mean? It's like most people have to one degree or another an ego. And especially if like your guy maybe phrase it, maybe they're right, right? They make a point where they are pointing to something in your plan that doesn't work. But they phrase it in a way that's kind of blunt. So A, you don't like being reproached. B, you don't like the tone. By that point, even though their content is perfectly correct, you're not hearing it yep. because it's like you have a bad. I don't like you. First, you're criticizing me, and then you're going about it with that tone. The guy is just saying things plainly how they are. Maybe he doesn't have a bad tone. He's yep. just not cuddling you in like slowly, gently yes. saying, "Hey, let's see it this way." And and you know what? A guy in that because I get the I get that kind of question all yeah. the time with all the companies we work with. Oh, I got this guy, and my my boss has a big ego, and I can't correct him because he just he just gets offended. Well, first of all, when you just like you said, if if you've got a big ego, and I tell you that your plan is wrong, I'm attacking a fortified position, and you're only going to bolster your position stronger. Exactly. And so don't attack that position. Mm-hmm. Instead, a simple technique that you can use is say, hey, boss, I, I'm really not sure why we're using this approach. Could you explain this to me? Because I want to make sure that I really understand what it is you want me to do. And it seems like if I do this right here, it's going to cause this reaction. And, and I don't want, I know you don't want that to happen. <laughs> so could you just give me a hand in fully understanding what your plan is? Yep. And, and that way you're, 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 you're kind of massaging their ego a yep. little bit and it opens their mind. And that's all you have to do is open up their ears. That's the goal is just to open their ears a little bit so that you can start to have a conversation with them and so that they can, you know, going back to the whole topic of today, so that they can see you as a human being mm-hmm. with a, with an idea or an opinion that actually matters as opposed to seeing you as someone that's attacking their ego. And that ego thing, 
I mean, if you think about the wars that have been, you know, we always talk about the wars that are caused by religion, but the wars that are caused by ego are, oh, yeah. are also pretty severe. And a lot of these incidents that we talk about, these retaliatory incidences, well, who's going to be the first person to say, you attacked my tribe and I'm going to let it slide? That's 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 a tough person. That's a hard position to be in. Yep. You're seen as weak. Yep. You're seen as you, you know vulnerable. You're seen as someone that can be pushed around. So there's that's a very delicate game that you have to play, and that causes problems. And that that ends up that's it's a game that's so hard to play. In mm-hmm. fact, that most people, or or many people across the span of time, have said, "No, I'm not going to say that." They did. They they drew blood. We're going to draw more blood. Yep, and it. I mean, it goes to what you were saying a second ago, too. Your people have to know that you're going to ask those questions of your leadership and that you're doing that work because they got to trust you. You know, that way, when Jocko comes to him and says, hey, guys, I know this is going to sound a little bit weird, but here's what we're doing and here's who you're bringing with you and this is what we're doing. They know that if you're telling them to do it, it's got to be done, that every uh, discussion has been had, that every angle has been looked at, that you've run it up the chain of command and registered your uh, objections if they're there. But they know that Jocko is not going to send us out to do something like this unless it simply has to be done. And I get asked this question a lot. Well, what do I do if one of my subordinates has a question about the way I've planned something and I don't have a good answer? What do I do then? And I say, well, what you do then is you listen to them. You actually listen to what they're saying. Because if, if, if I've told you to do something and you've then responded with some reason why we shouldn't do that thing and I can't explain away your reason, then probably I'm wrong. And, and as a leader, this is another thing where our ego plays a role as a leader, our ego says, well, if I admit that I'm wrong to the troops, they're going to think I'm up. They're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. The opposite is actually true. If I was in charge of you two and I presented you with a plan and you guys came back and said, hey, that plan's not smart. And I said, shut up and do it the way I told you. You don't respect me more. You respect me less. Absolutely. And if if I came to you two with a plan and said, hey, guys, here's the way we're going to execute this. And you say, hey, that's not a good idea. We should do it a different way. And I say, okay, well, what do you recommend? And we come together with a collaborative plan. You don't think less of me as a leader. As a matter of fact, you think more of me as a leader. You think that I'm a humble guy that will listen and take input. And by the way, bonus is you all now have real true ownership mm-hmm. of the plan and we all feel good about it. And when you guys go in the field, you execute it to the utmost of your ability because it's something that you own. It's amazing how everything you're saying is, it's as if you took uh, a list of all the traits of Lieutenant Callie at Milai and literally just said, do the opposite of all these things. <laughs> he was a guy who couldn't take criticism from his men. 100%. Who asserted, uh, you know, who, who pulled rank anytime time. anything like that happened, uh, who was a complete transparent yes man to his captain above him who would just never ask any questions. I mean, just right down the line. And as a result, his men had no trust in him. So that when they got into a situation that was chaotic, they felt like they were standing out on the corner by themselves in a country they didn't understand with nobody looking out for them. I don't want to say this in a way that makes it sound like I'm trying to justify anything they did. Of course not. But you put men in a situation where they feel like they're in complete chaos and they happen to have automatic weapons in their hands. 
Well, if I find myself in a situation where I'm completely overwhelmed by chaos, that automatic weapon's probably going to start to look like the best tool I have for structuring my environment. Yeah, there's uh, and and obviously this went way beyond that. Uh, years ago, I forget how many years ago there was a shooting in New York City. Uh, I think it was 38 rounds were fired at uh, maybe a homeless person, an unarmed person. I forget the situation, but there's a lot of people that just couldn't believe that all these, all these police officers shot at this unarmed individual horrible situation and again i i always i've always will say this like whenever i talk about bad police shootings i i've been on ride-alongs with cops i've done hits with cops it's a freaking hard job oh yeah and 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 i'm not a guy that like i've done that a couple times here and there but go out on that beat every day and deal with those scumbags of the world every single day and you're going to have it's going to be it's the freak it's one of the hardest jobs in the world that situation people say how the hell did that happen well there's there's a lot of tension in a situation the emotions are high people are screaming we're not trained well everyone is sitting there with their slack out of the trigger and when that first bang happens it's a it's a chain reaction that's one of the, one of the situations that you know i would see with my guys that was beautiful in ramadi was they wouldn't do that if if one of the snipers took a pointed shot at someone they would take the pointed shot and the others would hold fire check fire until you know the the situation either evolved or or de-escalated but the the army was always quite impressed with the fact that we would take really surgical shots at bad guys and there wouldn't be you know massive amounts of collateral damage um, again sometimes it's unavoidable but uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I think that's one thing that gets uh, really lost on a lot of people today. And I think there's a lot of propaganda that helps it get lost. You know, there's no question that there's been an evolution in um, our values and our relationship to these kind of things over the years. You go back to something like Sand Creek, 1864, uh, there might not have been a whole lot of people shedding too many tears over what happened. You get up to Milai, and, you know, there's some controversy and there's some you know there's a cover-up all those kind of things but once it comes out and it's laid bare and the evidence is clear things had changed from 1864 and that that incident and a few you know other incidents that were going on that made it out or a few pictures that came out it turned people against the war they decided that this is not worth putting our men in a situation where we're going to be doing things like this this is not worth it and you get up to today uh in the iraq war something like abu Ghraib, which is an unacceptable situation, but we're talking about prisoner abuse that doesn't uh, that, that that wouldn't cause uh, the people who were working that prison five years before that, the Iraqis who worked for Saddam, that wouldn't even you know they they, they wouldn't even make it through their filter, right? So I mean, what what was going on there with the American soldiers? It was it was not okay, but. It wasn't walking into a village and massacring 500 people. It wasn't, uh, you know, brutal torture in the same way that mm-hmm. uh, we would think of what was going on before we took control of that prison. And yet our response to that and the military's response to it once it came out was pretty dramatic. I mean, it was, there's and, and it was quick. It didn't there was not as much of a delay as soon as it comes out. There's so there's a clear shift that's going on there. If if even primarily from the standpoint of it's just it's a breach in discipline. That's not how you behave. Yeah. And and, and one of the things that I talk about with my guys is because you got to frame this right. 
Because, you, you know, you mentioned earlier that if you had dealt with this person that had cut the heads off of the three-year-old girl yesterday and now you, you had him cuffed and knew it was him, that guy deserves a bullet, right? Hey, I agree with you. That guy deserves a bullet. The, the problem is, well, number one, it's a breakdown in discipline. But to me, more important, and, and what I would tell my guys is, if we behave that way, we have a, a significant chance of strategically negatively impacting our war effort. So I get that you want to kill these bad guys, but more important than us killing these bad guys is us winning this war. And so if we run around doing dumb things, we're going to have a negative strategic impact. And, th- and that was actually always the biggest worry for, as a leader is you don't want to have some something happen where you, you know, you, you, you drop a bomb on the wrong area or, you know, and a bunch of civilians get killed or, you know, you, you don't want to have that thing happen. That's a real and the effort and lengths that American forces go to to prevent civilian casualties is it's incredible. I don't think most people have any idea. No, they don't. How they it don't. works. And I, I think that's one of the cool things about creating a certain mythology that people want to live up to. The first time you say it, it may not be true. It may be a wishful thinking that you are those people and you are not quite there. But as people keep repeating it and you run again and again with the fact that your behavior doesn't match your ideals, more and more people will keep working on trying to actually build that thing. They don't want to feel like hypocrites. They actually want to live up to that ideal. And that's one of the things where while sometimes people get turned off by when you have this high-minded ideal and this very poor behavior, they're like, ah, look at that hypocrisy. They say these things and they don't mean it. Well, sometimes when you say it long enough, people actually do want to live up to it and they do change their behavior. So while the theory may not match the practice when you start, if you keep at it long enough, the practice may try to inch closer to matching that theory. The ideals matter And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you can take it to a a political context, Mm -hmm. right? When people can point back at uh, the United States, say, before the 1960s and before the Civil War and point to the Constitution and Declaration of Independence and these high-minded ideas. And people love to be the cynical one that says, oh, yeah, 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 but slavery and but this and but that. And yeah, totally, totally true. But the 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 conclusion to draw from that is not that uh, the ideals don't matter or that they're just on paper. Mm-hmm. The fact that those ideals were there was what allowed the civil rights movement to eventually Absolutely. come into being. That's what you know gave us the room. In, in fact, you could even say that the thing we're talking about the same thing. Uh, that gap between ideal and reality. Mm-hmm. One way to talk about that is hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that gap, that opening, is that's the opening where people realize that and say there is a gap between yep. our professed ideals. And, and it makes room for that kind of positive change, right? I mean, you can go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the Mongols were never, <laughs> ever going to give up slavery <laughs> of <course>. because <laughs> their moral system didn't have room for that. Yeah. And so it, you, you could go up to them and say, well, how dare you enslave these people? And they're not going to get defensive, they're going to look at you like you're crazy because there's no room for that, you know, for that gap. That idea doesn't even exist. Right. Right. And so the ideals matter. And when uh, when when they're broken, um, you know, again, I I think that there's um, a motivation on the part of a lot of people who are who are more cynical than they should be, uh, given the country that they're fortunate enough to live in. You know, Um, this is something that 
you get from going overseas to a lot of places is something certainly that I got from spending so much time in Africa and the Middle East for work is, boy, you come back after the first trip to, over to those places and you realize you want to kiss the ground when you get off that airplane and you want to go around and just hug everybody you see because you are so fortunate to live in a place where things that we absolutely take for granted over here are miracles. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, – one of the things I did, really didn't want to do um, when I was talking about me lying that episode, um, I stayed very focused on the, uh, the incident itself, sort mm-hmm. of, um, because I you don't want to you don't want to be making excuses for something like that. You don't want to make it seem like you're trying to gl- gloss over an atrocity, um, but. But you don't want to uh, give fuel to that idea that like this is this speaks to like a larger problem in our society because I just don't believe that. Well, that's you know? why it's a dance, right? Yeah. You know, if you start pushing the button too much in the direction of making apologies for, well, after all, we are good guys and there are a few exceptions, but look, we are, we stand for freedom and democracy. He's like, yeah, maybe, but let's not be so quick about sweeping under the rug all the bad stuff. Let's look at it. The guys who instead push on the button of, hey, look at all the bad stuff. That means that all these ideals are crap and it's not real and it's all hypocrisy. It's like, whoa, 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 slow down a second. Yeah, you get a couple of points where you're right, but you're also missing the boat. It's like, it's almost like, and that happens in most discussion. Like in most situations, you rarely have somebody who is 100% wrong. Is that they take a partial truth and they take it too far. And they lose perspective of the other side mm-hmm. of the equation. Yeah, like people don't understand. Like American soldiers were killed and maimed uh, in situations that absolutely could have been avoided mm-hmm. if we disregarded our rules of engagement and if we made like we made conscious decisions to put ourselves at risk when we did not have to because we were trying to be sensitive to the environment and to the people that were there. And I don't think enough people recognize the historical anomaly that that is. I mean, that is just a you can't for for thousands of years of human history that is just completely unthinkable. Sure. You couldn't imagine something like that. And the extent to which we go, I mean, Jocko has talked about this before on his show. The extent to which we go to try to make sure that the people, you know, the targets that we're that we're dealing with are targets. Um, I think if more civilians had uh, had uh, an idea of that. People would feel a lot different about about what we do over there. You know, it doesn't mean that when something happens like Abu Ghraib, they're not going to uh, react against that, but they're going to react against it from a place of, hey, we're we're a good country. That shit is not going to fly. All right, that's not you're not going to represent us that way, and that's fine. That's a healthy way to respond to something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but you know, again, political situation or whatever else is going on, like you know, people have more of a knee-jerk reaction to those things that you're talking about. And so. I think in that sense, it goes back to that uh, Dan Carlin approach to things, right? That ability to look at things one way, and just when you're getting comfortable with that conclusions, to say, yes, maybe that is the conclusion we take, but it's not that easy. There's also a twenty percent from the other side that's not really wrong, and you should include in that. And, and that keeps you thinking on your toes. You don't become dogmatic. You don't become thinking in purely black and white terms. You you always have to have that nuance approach, which, and that's the problem. That's the other paradox is most people take nuance to mean weakness. Then you can't make up your mind. You are too wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. You are, eh, it's not black. It's not white. It's somewhere in there. It's like, 
No, that's also a weakness, is the ability to look at things both ways and also make a decision. That's where, to me, it comes in as where it's valuable. And I think it's funny because so many of the things that Joko brings up are so about really the kind of human being that you want to become, you know, about self-perfection, really, because that's what it boils down to, which is then what makes you a great leader, because there's no great leader without somebody who has worked on themselves a lot. And, you know, when you break down to the principles, nothing sounds like it's that hard, right? Mm. It's all like, okay, of course, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that completely... And yet it's one of the things where, while the theory may not be that hard, the practice is unrelenting. You have to be at it every single day or it's so easy to sleep. There's there's a great line in the Tao Te Ching that I was mentioning to Daryl when we were driving down. There's, there's the line that say, my way is very easy to understand and very easy to practice, but nobody understands it and nobody practices it. <laughs> and I love it because yeah, in theory, yes, it's not that bad. It's fairly straightforward. And yet there are so many steps along the way where it's easy to go the wrong path. Yeah. That is like, yeah, the theory is easy. The practice is you need to put in the work and, and, and there's those, no substitute. Each of those steps matters so much too because you know, Jocko was talking about escalation in those situations. The um, the book about the war in Chechnya, you talked about, I think, the line. I, I hadn't read the book until I heard your podcast on it. And uh, it just it's one of those things that when you hear it, it's so obvious. But if you were to just step back from the context a little bit, it kind of seems ridiculous, Is mm-hmm. which is that the savagery started when people stopped shaving, when soldiers stopped shaving. And I think part of the reason for something like that is uh, – once it is, it's like a the escalation is like a ratchet. Once you stop shaving, well, now you're a unit that doesn't shave anymore. Okay, whatever. Well, what that means is if you're a unit that lacks discipline, well, now your lack of discipline is not going to manifest as not shaving. You already don't shave. That's normal. That's totally normal. So now your lack of discipline is going to get to the next thing. Now I'm not cleaning my weapons properly. And then pretty soon you're a unit that doesn't shave and doesn't clean your weapons properly. And that doesn't even seem like a lack of discipline anymore. That just seems like daily life. And now your lack of discipline or whatever it is, is going to go up to the next spot. And it can happen with, you know, it can happen with just brutality and savagery and things mm-hmm. like that as well, where now this kind of thing is just normal. So if I'm angry, uh, and it's totally normal for us to be able to smack these prisoners in the face. But now I'm really pissed. Well, I'm not going to smack them in the face. I smack them in the face anyway. You know, so I'm going to show my anger now by stepping it up. And, well, okay, if that's if that slides and the leadership doesn't step in, well, now that's normal. Yeah. And we're, you know, we don't just smack soldiers. We punch and kick soldiers. That Once that's the baseline, mm-hmm. it ratchets up to that point. Well, it's going to escalate from there because, you know, that's kind of where it goes. And that's why catching those things right at the beginning and letting people know that, you know, all of these things matter. I mean, that's probably the life lesson. A lot of the stuff you even talk about is everything matters. It all matters. Yeah. And not it takes some time. Like I didn't I didn't realize this when I was a 20 year old seal or a 25 year old seal. You know, I kind of started getting the indications. And and that's why, again, you know, I talk about training and leadership because that's what this stuff is. You know, putting somebody into a moral dilemma with no training is like putting someone onto the jujitsu mat with no training. They're just going to get destroyed. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen and they have no control over it. And you know, you got to think about these things. You got to think deeply about these things so that you have some sort of an anchor 
that's grounded that won't get ripped out at the first person that says hey shoot that three-year-old baby you want you need to be grounded and have thought about these things in a deeper way and and you know what you said about people swaying one way or the other you're right and people actually want to be led Mm -hmm. and they want to be led even more so when there is a pressure situation going on when there's something that 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 you're not used to or that people aren't used to some kind of stressor some some kind of stress or pressure if you can step up and lead at that moment people are looking for it they're looking for a leader and that was I remember you were talking about one of the guys in Milai the 6 foot 3 guy and he's a natural leader right he's a natural leader that people kind of followed and what he started going sideways and started just getting completely savage and brutal people just kind of okay you know he's a guy you know like okay that guy's stepping up and and that's and and there was no one on the other end of the spectrum to say hey no we're not doing that stop and that's the biggest lesson from that situation actually from both the situations yeah and you know you know people talk about is the, the how can the leader be responsible if they're not there you know yes the leader's responsible whether they're there the way they train the people the way they educated the way they communicated the culture that they set with those people they're responsible and certainly these leaders were absolutely responsible in these scenarios i guess before we wrap one last thing i want to ask you is these days um you say you work a lot with businesses you clearly are you know you're working primarily on the concept of leadership and how to teach people uh, better tools to handle it how do you go about it? What's your what's are you, is it primarily like a business oriented approach now with, with major businesses that are? Yeah, we'll go in and do an assessment mm-hmm. and figure out where the friction points are. Mm-hmm. Figure out where they're having problems, and, and and then we solve the problems that they're having through leadership. And, and that's every single problem in every single organization is a leadership problem. All of them, mm-hmm. whether it's your. P&L's upside down, whether it's your processes aren't, aren't working correctly, whether you got the wrong people in the wrong positions, it doesn't matter. The problems are going to get solved through leadership and leadership alone. And that's why we you know that's why we're doing well because if you've got a if you've got a P&L that's upside down, you've got leaders that aren't paying attention to their expenditures and and their income. Right. If you've got processes that aren't working, you've got leaders that are in charge of those processes that are allowing them to continue to exist without refinement. If you've got people that are in positions that shouldn't be in those positions, you've got leaders that are allowing them to be in those positions without either being coached and mentored and trained so that they can lead or removed from those positions. Mm -hmm. And you can go right down the list with any problem that any organization is having. There's a leadership solution to that problem. And that's what we do. It seems to me like it's definitely the thing I'm going to take away from the most and listening to you talk about this stuff is one of the things that struck me is I came in with uh, a lot of questions in mind. I wanted to talk to you about like that I started out with, right? You, you got your guys, you're going into a horrible situation and there's these horrible things going on. How do you restrain your guys from going and retaliating in these terrible ways? And your response and the look on your face and everything to it, it actually like kind of threw me off a little bit. It wasn't what I, what I was expecting because your, your answer to that really was, dude, if I, have gotten to the point where we're there in Iraq and there's a guy with handcuffs and I have to figure out how to restrain my guys from doing something, I failed a long time ago. 
Because you, you took it as almost like, eh, well, you know, you deal with it. That was taken care We How do we stop them? Yeah, we now, stopped them in training. We stopped them in boot camp. We stopped them at BUDS. We stopped them in tra- all yeah, the way up and, to here. And I don't want to make that. I don't want to. I don't want to make that. I don't want to make light of that because that that is a hard sure. situation. And when you lose guys in a unit of 35 guys and you got guys that are wounded and killed, there is absolutely uh there is an absolute fire that you have to control because we know who's doing it we we can find them we can get out there and and get after them and so we we do have to keep ourselves in check we do i mean we had many conversations of hey remember why we're here remember who we represent remember that if we get out of line we won't even be allowed to do what we do anymore. Oh, so so don't take it the wrong way that in any unit, any unit, you lose people, you lose your friends, you lose your brothers. That is an emotional, it's an emotional thing and you're in an emotional situation already and you have access, direct access to unleash your emotions if you are allowed to. And... Yeah, the you know with the platoon commanders that work for me with I mean Those guys, you know Leif who wrote the book with me I mean he absolutely had to had to sit his guys down and explain to them. Hey, let's remember why we're here Let's remember that We could go to jail if we do the wrong thing and nothing that we do here is worth any of you going to jail for any amount of time so I didn't mean to make light of how hard that is and and how difficult that can be and and it's not just for me uh, Not just for for the seals, but you know the Marines the soldiers that were there who are dealing with like I said they're dealing with younger kids and and uh, less with less training and You know those when you come in the seal teams you came in because you wanted to go to combat like every single seal wants to go to combat They want to be there. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard my retirement speech. It's 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 on YouTube, but when like I made a list and said, "Hey, if you want to go over to the eastern part of Ramadi and live in uh, in a blown out bunker and get into firefights every day, put your name on this list." And I walked out of the room. I came back twenty minutes later, and every single guy in the task unit had their name on the list. So we're we're dealing with guys that every single guy that's what they want to do. Now, do they get tired? Do they get combat stress? They absolutely do. Do they get scared? Yes, they do. It's it's hard, but we have a guy that at least start from the position of I want to do this this is my profession the army you know you you definitely end up with guys that are coming in the army because they wanted to pay for college or they wanted to get a job or they wanted to get out of whatever hometown they're in and and that's how they ended up in the army again there's also a great number of soldiers that are just as eager for combat and certainly a great number of Marines that are the same attitude so each each one of those people you have your own challenges and it and it is hard and you do have to and what goes back to what this whole thing has been about as the leader You can't be the one that's getting wrapped up in those emotions. You can't be the one when you, yeah I'll tell you what your heart's gonna be fucking broken When you lose guys, it's gonna be broken and you're gonna want nothing more than to go out and rubble cities and salt the earth so Everyone is dead and no one will ever live there again but if you let that get a hold of you as the leader, your 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 team and your men 
are going to be in hell. That's where they're going to end up. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the education, the training, the understanding. I mean, so many people contacted me after I did the, the, the Me Lie podcast that thank you. They, they play that Me Lie podcast for leadership training inside multiple military organizations. It's, it's awesome. I'm so happy that they do that because when I came out with that podcast, I had tons of people that said I didn't know about that. People that were in leadership positions didn't under, didn't know what the Milai Massacre was, and it's a it's one of the darkest stains on our history. But you have to talk about it. And you talked earlier about hey, I don't want to make I didn't really want to go into too much of what led up to it because I didn't want to make excuses. Man, I went into detail of why it happened because I want everyone to understand all those little things. How when you cut those corners, how when you play the the telephone game with your intelligence and you let people say things that you don't put them in check and you don't you let them use words that aren't correct and you have people that don't have a culture to ask why we're doing this and you set those situations up and you let bad leaders into situate or in positions that they shouldn't be in Cali failing out of OCS multiple times. Like that's it. That's it. You let those things happen, and and you're going to end up in hell. And as a leader, that's your job to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good place to wrap it up, man. Milai didn't necessarily happen on March 16, 1968. It happened when Cali failed OCS. It happened when the intelligence failed to get passed down properly. It failed every time somebody was allowed to smack around a Vietnamese and they didn't get called on it. That's when it happened. You know, the, 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 the actual acute incident was just the result of a long, long process. So Awesome. It's great, man. Thank you well, so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for you guys for what you do. And you guys put out kick-ass podcasts, and I appreciate listening to them. And yeah, maybe man. we'll get to do this again sometime. Thank you as well. I mean, I can tell you from my own personal uh, experience listening to your podcast as well as a lot of guys I know of all ages, guys from high school all the way on up into their 50s. Uh, one guy that I know is a huge fan. Um, you know, I don't want to uh, – it's just uh, three of us, and it's getting a little sweaty in here already, so I won't get on my knees too much. But uh, it's, not an, uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that you're changing people's lives. So thank you. Keep it up. I well, appreciate it, man. It's had a, had a great effect on me personally. So thank you. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. And that wraps up the conversation. And thanks for listening, and thanks – to Daryl Cooper and Daniele Bellelli for organizing that discussion. And I look forward to having some more of those types of conversations in the future about history and about human nature and about leadership. And in the meantime, Echo, yes. speaking of leadership, if people want to lead themselves down the right path. The path, yes. Do you have any maybe recommendations for them? Sure. Of course I do. So we're all working out, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty Still, much, yeah. Every day. Yeah. You work out every day. Yeah. Although I got sick. Yeah. Straight up. Get a rest. Yeah. Flu. Flu. Yeah. You know what that is? Uh, yeah, man. I hear bad things. Yeah. Man. No, it wasn't good. get the flu good. shot. Yeah, I didn't get that. <laughs> Yeah, man. You know, I hear mixed reviews about the whole flu deal. Yeah. Either way, you're obviously better. You seem better. Well, I'm better. Which is good because now you can get back to working out. And when you get back to working out, you still want to maintain your joints. Sick or not sick, mm. maintain your joints. That's what I think. I think everyone would agree with 
me on that one. And the way you maintain your joints is to take joint supplements like krill oil, Jocko Super Krill Oil. That's the good one. Jocko Supplements, that's right. Also, a good supplement called Joint Warfare. Take those every single day, man. Mm. Every single day. No breaks. Sure. No slack. <laughs> no slack. Unless you run out. But here's the thing. You don't have to run out anymore. You subscri- you get the subscription situation every, what, 30 days, 60 days, whatever. However much you use or whatever, you got to estimate. And then, boom, you do your subscription. You get one in the mail every month. Never run out. Maintain the joints. Important. More important than your power mass gainer, 5,000. I think so. I mm-hmm. think so too. Yeah. Also, you want some cognitive enhancements, which you do. You do. You totally do. Brothers, like, you know, cell phone signals and, you know, pollutions, pollutants from cars. Mess, it mess up your brain sometimes. You need some cognitive enhancement. Jock was another supplement called Discipline. It's a pre-mission. Cognitive enhancement. Physical enhancement. Cognitive enhancement. All in one. Boom. And it tastes good. Boom. Take it. I would say take that every day. You take it before stuff. So you call it a pre-mission indicates you take it before you do something where you're going to yeah, use before it. Yeah, before I do a mission. Yeah. That mission could be going to work with a company. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I'm going to need to be on my A-game mentally because mm-hmm. we're solving problems. Sure. We're digging into leadership situations. We're sure. finding out what's going on. A-game has got to come. Also, jujitsu. <laughs> yeah. But the, the people always say, well, you, I thought you didn't take pre-workouts. And I don't. Not for a workout. Oh, yeah. For the workout. I mean, I might do that one out of every 10 workouts. Maybe even one out of 20. Where I take some kind of a pre-workout. Yeah. It's because when I wake up in the morning, I'm not hungry. I'm not even third. I mean, I drink water, but I'm not like, I don't feel the need for something to jack me up during the workout. Yeah. I'm just going to go get it. Yeah, and you don't really drink coffee, so you don't even have that situation. Yeah, no, I don't like coffee. Yeah, man. People ask why I don't like coffee. Don't like the taste of it. It tastes horrible. Yeah, so what that did is it eat, like it made you or it didn't allow you to get into the coffee system because yeah. that's really what it is. Yeah, I mean, no. I, I hate to call I, it. And everyone says it's an acquired taste. My yeah. question is when something's an acquired taste, how many times do you have to drink something <laughs> that sucks before you're like, okay, I like I this know, now? Before you acquire that yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, man. And, and there was no, to me, there was no, it wasn't like, Hey, if I can get this, if I can start liking yeah. this, yeah. I'll be I'll be stronger. Yeah, like, be no, solid. that wasn't gonna happen. <laughs> it's like, hey, if I start liking this, and I'll spend four dollars a day at a coffee store. Yeah, no, not happening. Well, usually, I mean, like beer, right? When you first drink beer, typically for acquired most people, taste. Yeah, That's you what don't everything like it. Is. I don't. I, no. I'm not. I'm not good with any acquired taste. No, not chocolate milk. Chocolate milk, right off the bat, everyone it's not loves acquired, it. Right? It's just immediately boom. acquired. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till you try the milk. <laughs> that's not acquired taste. No, that's it's a so straight good. up it's direct ridiculous. <clears throat> yeah, and that's probably why you make things taste good because you don't. You're not down for the no, whole acquired no, don't situation. Like the acquired taste. Well, okay, so like beer, coffee is the same deal because there's a there's a benefit beyond just the taste. So beer is like, yeah, you get drunk or whatever, and people like that. But it's like, dang, the beer is kind of this barrier. Like, I wish it tasted better. Blah blah blah. That's why they do jello shots, you know, mm. the taste get in there. Anyway, so after a while, you're like, you know what? I'll endure the taste to get. But then eventually you like the taste. You end up liking the taste yeah. because you can kind of recognize certain, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Same thing with coffee. You kind of start to like the taste because originally, initially, you want to get the, the boost, the caffeine boost. Mm. Well, the good thing is with 
with the products that we make, there's sure. no, they're not acquired taste. They yeah. just taste good. <laughs> Direct, uh, uh, delicious. You can just get taste. after it from the get-go. Yeah, and this, this discipline, pre-mission is no exception. Tastes good. It's like a lemon-lime. Is that the official flavor? That's the official. Lemon-lime? Official, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good one because that's like a real like broad, like most yeah. people are going to like the lemon-lime. Yeah. Like it takes a weirdo to not like lemon lime. No, you gotta have some. Not that that's a bad thing. You gotta have issues. Yeah, you're probably (laughs) missed. (laughs) But nonetheless, it does taste good. I will agree with that. And I think it's one of those deals where you can just take it, even if it's not right before some stuff. Yeah, I I just drink it. Sometimes I'm just straight up want something sweet. Just straight up. It's all good for your brain and stuff. Yeah, yeah, man. Is that a lack of discipline? Uh, I want something sweet. No, because unless it's like a bad thing. No, no, no. Because you think about it, you want to break it down. What makes something a lack of discipline? It's like when you slip, when it's like goes beyond your intentions, right? If you intend to do something, but then it's like, oh, my immediate payoff is going to kind of get in the way or whatever. Then that's So that's why it's okay to be like, tomorrow I'm going to have a mint chocolate chip milkshake. Yeah, it kind of is. Not today. Tomorrow, but if that deviated from your original whole plan, then it's lack of discipline. Like if you're like, oh, I'm really craving a shake. I won't have it today, but I'll have it tomorrow. Even though the plan is doesn't entail you having it tomorrow, then it's like a lack of discipline, just on a bigger scale, I guess, or more <laughs> long longevity <laughs> scale. Check. Nonetheless, discipline. It's good. Tastes good. Feels yeah, it, good. It won't take discipline to take discipline. No, is what true. I'm saying. That's a good point. Like because it's gonna taste good. It's gonna make your your. You know what it is when you take it. I was, I was talking to Jade about this. It's like, a, um, you know how like when you're searching for a word, you know, oh, when you're trying yeah. to explain something yeah, and like, yeah. let's say, I don't know, your brain is off. You're, you're hungover. Yeah. Or you didn't get enough sleep. I don't know, whatever. And you're searching, oh, what's that word again? Or you forget someone's name, like your friend mm. or something like this. It's almost like. The discipline is going to connect those dots for you. Yeah. And yeah. this is what it feels like. You know, the, like, you know, you ever played the lottery? like powerball or something not really well you ever seen yeah, like yeah. on I the mean, news how they get the balls yeah it's like this big round up. cage that they You're spin right. and all the all the balls fly around in there and then they just kind of <laughs> one randomly comes into the little chute there it's what it feels like it's like a, that's all the words <laughs> that's your brain <laughs> and that's all the words and man that correct words just not shoot is not coming in there you know what i mean but the discipline shoots the right words in there like no like one speed boom 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 Dang. see what i'm saying that's what it feels like Take discipline, win the lottery. <laughs> yep. Check. Yep. Same exact thing. Nonetheless, it's good. Get that at originmain.com. That's where you can get all this stuff. Origin Labs, they're producing it, you know, by the truckload for, for us. Also on originmain.com. There's some good geese on there. Really good geese. Only geese I'm wearing now. Forever. Forever. Straight <laughs> up. And they're made in America, by the way. The cotton's made in America, sewn in America. Loom, loom is not a verb. I woven. Know. Woven. Yes. With looms. The in wrong America. word. The wrong word. Lottery just popped in there. <laughs> <laughs> loomed. Yeah. Used well, to loomed into a verb. Maybe that's uh, proactive. Yeah. You know, I'm creating words. The, yeah. No, it's true. See. Hey, boom. when Shakespeare made up a word, everyone was cool with it. Right. All and, of a sudden, that came cool. And you can make words. Yeah. All you need is people to sign up. That's so what's you good know about what? English. The cotton is straight up loomed in America. <laughs> And so, you know, assembled in America, they're made yeah. in America straight up. The geese, there's rash guards on there, compression gear, if you will, pants and tops. By the way, it's not just cotton, you know. That's why it's so different. Yeah. Because it's 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 a hybrid blend. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just cotton. All right. So 
Yeah, there's uh, that. That's why the material dries quicker. That's why it's antimicrobial. Yeah. That's why it doesn't smell bad. Yeah. That's why it dries out quick. That's why it's lighter because it's it's made from the get go for jujitsu. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that is a big deal. If you if you take jujitsu and you even just pay even that much attention to that kind of stuff, it makes a difference. Yeah. And then try to go back to your old gi. You can be like, bro, why did I even do that? <laughs> go back to my origin gi. Sticking with it. That's why I'm sticking with it. Also, speaking of jujitsu, there's an immersion camp coming up. Mm-hmm. Sept or August 26th through September 2nd. There's two two sessions, right? Early, late session. I'm going. Jock, are you going? I am going. Yeah. I'm going to both sessions. Poor Jock was so mad he couldn't participate last time. Yeah, it hurt rib. Yeah. It was almost like something was there just bothering you the whole time. Just uh, a it, little it bit. Did. Oh, no, no. A lot. Yeah. I yeah. Well, like you that. didn't show it that much, but you could tell. Well, yeah, I wouldn't say I let it get to me. Right, but right. But it definitely bothered me. It would show yeah. every, every once in a while. Nonetheless, Jock will be there in full effect this time. And, uh, yeah, I'll be there. And, uh, you know, we can immerse ourselves in jujitsu. That's what it is. It's not a boot camp. August 26th through September 2nd. Yeah, that's a good one. Come in on Origin. Out. Yeah. So go to originmain.com. You can look at literally all of these it's immersion. It's jujitsu immersion camp. You can only do jujitsu. How, how many hours a day can you do jujitsu? What, in real life or in the camp? In the camp uh, and in real life. I guess technically in the camp you can do it for 24 hours really yeah okay well, technically if you really <laughs> okay, want okay now but, realistically what do you think someone does two or three hours in the morning and two or three hours in the afternoon or two hours in the morning two hours in the afternoon two hours in the evening six hours a day yeah you'll be sore yeah Girl, if you're going getting that. after it which you're not obligated to no. do but you that's the freedom you have and that's how good it is yeah and that's the thing man so you know how like let's say you for example yeah and you're like, hey, I want to f- roll two hours in the morning, two hours afternoon, two hours at night. I kn- but here's the thing. You can't just decide to roll. You got to roll with somebody. Otherwise, you're just rolling by yourself. So that's a problem in the real world. Not everyone, you know, but Brad, this camp. Oh, there'll be someone. More, yeah. Every single yeah. time. Plenty of people, by yeah. the way. All levels. Boom. So, yeah. Get some. Even if you've never done jujitsu ever. Still go. And learn some jiu-jitsu. Yep. Get off to a... Pff, it's like, a good way to learn. the ground running. Immersion. Well, Immersion, that's the best way yeah. to learn. Yeah, fully. So yeah, originmain.com. Check, look at all this stuff and, you know... Dave Burke's coming, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that Mr. one. Mr. Immersion Jiu-Jitsu. Anytime Dave Burke calls me, I see his name pop on my phone. It's like, you know, every once in a while you'll run into that guy who kind of gives you that feeling like, oh, sh- Dave Burke's calling me. Good you deal, know? Dave. Yeah, good deal, Dave. It kind of like <laughs> brightens your day a little I don't bit. Know, I don't yeah. know what else is coming. I don't know if JP's going to come or Leif. Yeah. Got to check the schedules. Yeah. Got to block the EF team schedules. Yeah, that'd be good if both of them come. They've been, I've been noticing they've been getting their train on. They're trying to train. Yeah, man, that's good. Also, speaking of training, if you want some good fitness gear, mix up the workout, get more creative with the workout, with the movements and equipment, go to onit.com slash Jocko. Get yourself some primal bells. I highly recommend by the way, someone hit me up because we had this conversation last time. You said that my workouts were boring. Yeah. And someone kind of sided with me, just so you know. Cool. Because I said the workouts can be boring if you're boring. Right. <laughs> yeah, we, people, but the, just, the thing is we did conclude that. Some people sided with me, Yeah. just well, so you know. Well, they're right, and, and straight up you're right. Because I think we kind of concluded that too, where 
yeah, you know, if you're boring or if you intentionally make it boring, yeah, it's boring. That's how. In fact, the boredom, the boredom and the boringness of the workout can be part of a certain type of training. You know, it's like a mental endurance oh, training. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So it's a whole big thing. And I was irresponsible to accuse do you. Ever do, you. do you ever do a workout where you just do one movement? The whole time. The whole time? No. Oh, yeah. Wait. There no, is some mental. Not a full workout. There's some sort of like, there's definitely something to that mentally. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I'm just going to do. 500 repetitions of whatever this is <laughs> actually yes i have it was snatch so kettlebell was, snatch? here's the thing though it was i took kettlebell a cross, snatch no um oh barbell, barbell snatch. yeah okay it was a crossfit 500 snatches it that's, no it was um that's no joke how many, i forget how many it was a dumb amount put it yeah. that way well at the time i thought it was anyway i forget how much it was probably for I think you it was, it was like probably 200. like 20 <laughs> <laughs> yeah 20 is already done i think it was 200 you got bored at, at 15 oh, <laughs> you powered through those last five reps though <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna suck it Mental up fortitude. Yeah, yeah yeah did it but that was it that was the only thing super sore the next day yeah but that's it yeah snatch it's not just kind of a fun exercise, though. It's a thing. Yeah. Well. Well, yeah, depends on what you mean by <laughs> yeah. fun. But the yeah. movement is like it's more dynamic than just a, um, you know, like. The thing with exercises like the snatch, if you're not focused, all, this one's real simple. But if you don't focus, box jump. Like oh, if, yeah. you, if you let yeah. your mind wander during a box jump, yeah. next thing you know, you got a f- eight inch savage scar on yeah. your shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, very true. You yeah. ever near miss? A box jump and it like wakes you up. You're like, oh man, I wasn't paying attention. Oh, yeah, I almost yeah. paid the man on that one. No, you know, yeah. I don't do that much box jumps. Probably used to. I used to box jump like a savage. <laughs> Check. Just, Get back just on for it. your own perfect. Yeah, you know, no, I'm super, super stoked that I know that now. <laughs> Nonetheless, <laughs> there's some uh, cool workout e- equipment gear on there. Boring workout or not? Get creative. Boom, look in there. A lot of stuff. I was, I was just on there, not yesterday, the day before. Good, good, good website. Good info, too, by the way, on it. Dot com slash Jocko. Good spot. Good way to support. Also, when you get these books, I think I'm redesigning the website. Good. I think so. I think it's old. Okay. Old looking. Well, now there's, now there's <laughs> Brad, people that be anticipating this for next year <laughs> while you try and get around to it. Yeah, the website was old looking since day one, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, nonetheless. Um, anyway, back to the point. Uh, when you get any of the books that we review, including Jocko's actual books, Way the Warrior Kid, Extreme Ownership, The Field Manual, all these books, look, I'm listed on the website. And the books are listed by episode in the book section. You just click through there when you get them. Boom, good way to support. Takes to Amazon, Amazon Prime, one-day shipping. Boom, it's good. Good way to support too. But yeah, get them through there. Good way to support. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Seems obvious, I know. But some people, they haven't subscribed and they're not obligated to. But if you do want to support, subscribe. It's a good way. Also on YouTube. When I say subscribe, I'm talking iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all that stuff. Mm. And YouTube. So don't exclude YouTube, the video version of this podcast. Which you've been pretty motivated on lately. We'll say active. Sure. I don't I don't count on motivation. <laughs> That's you know good. what I'm saying? I, I try to stick good. with the discipline. Try to you in right there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I see what you did there. Nonetheless, I am disciplined with it. But 
I am motivated too because, you know, I, I understand the value of excerpts now. Someone emailed me the other day, hey, this excerpt of uh, not joining the military or something about yeah. regretting not joining the military this is what he did. He had, I think he had like a medical thing mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, he couldn't pass or whatever, but he still could do work for the military in other like right, departments. Right, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, no, so no, no he like, went and did, he became like an electronics te- technician for the military, even though he wasn't in the military. Yeah. Still served. Yeah, see what I'm saying? So yeah. like those little excerpts can kind of offer this info, whether it be advice or just spark other questions in people. Maybe they wouldn't have got it. Maybe they missed that episode mm-hmm. or maybe they just weren't interested in listening Actually, to the Actually, speaking of missing the episode, somebody pointed out, somebody made a really funny meme that it showed it's I, I, it didn't show you make an excerpt but it showed like someone discovering an excerpt and like, wow this is awesome and then it said oh no episode number attached to this excerpt uh-huh so meaning hey glad i got the excerpt now where can i find this right, so right. in the future we may want to add the episode number in there yeah yeah so did you know that there was a big meme war no, it, it was on the more, news. Mean more. I, I guess, and I can't really follow it a hundred percent because it was all in Reddit. Sure. And but I read an article about there was like a legit meme war. <laughs> What's a meme war though? Well, a meme war is different memes going back and forth at each other. But yeah. there was a, a meme war, and I've I've seen a funny. Somebody asked me one time. They had a they had a, a ball cap. You ever seen the ball caps that say? You know, Vietnam War veteran, or yeah. you know, Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan Operation Iraqi Freedom War veteran, or something like that. Someone wrote me or sent me a picture and said, "Is this, is it offensive for me to wear this hat?" Mm. And the hat said, "You know, <laughs> survivor of the meme war." And it looked yeah. like it looked like a legit <laughs> right. veteran's hat. And I kind of was like, "No, man. As far as I'm concerned, you're good." Yeah, okay. I don't know what you've been through on the <laughs> meme wars. <laughs> I, I don't know what the meme more is. I will. I'm going to look into it. Yeah, but there's a meme more on Reddit. Yeah, it Apparently, very... it had to do with sequels. I can't, I can't say the whole... I don't understand it well enough, but I understand it well enough to laugh and, yeah. and think it's funny. I think it's very compelling, 100%. Meme more. Those memes are funny, man. Yeah, they get real are funny. funny. People memes are creative. Are That's good. That's a good thing. Nonetheless, excerpts. <laughs> I do put the episode on there. By the way, here's oh, okay. the thing: when you go in, when you go to uh, uh, YouTube, oh, you got to go to the read more or something. You got to click on read more. That's the thing. Yeah. So it looks like. By the way, I, I was reading YouTube comments the other day. Oh, damn! It's bold. That's a wacky wild yeah, adventure. Yeah, but someone, right there. someone wrote, "Why are we even making these comments?" Jocko and Echo don't even read them. Guess what? Jocko reads them. I read them. Dang! There you go. Me more was going on. I had to do something. <laughs> Take some some kind of action. Uh, yeah. Let's just read the comments. Actually, that makes sense, bro. Because here's the thing about YouTube comments. This is this isn't new, by the way. So, a lot of people know this already. Where YouTube comments seem to be, maybe there's probably other forms and stuff where they get worse. But YouTube has the most potential for terrible comments, <laughs> and for no reason too. So, well, isn't it because it's completely unregulated? It can right? be. Yeah. Well, in other words. On a Facebook comment or on a Twitter comment, generally it's your person. You're you're a human being. Yeah. On to, on YouTube, you're just you're just a yeah. Nameless. You can create an account pretty yeah. easy that, and they can't really think. Yeah. So it's anonymous. You know, it's you know close to anonymous. So the 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 key is, or the kind of the thing, the result is like if you're gonna read YouTube comments on your your content or whatever, you gotta 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 have thick skin and real thick skin because they get it's like they're trying to hurt your feelings mm. like they're trying you know <laughs> it, 
I think they're hilarious. <laughs> they are. Yeah. And they can be. And yeah. that's the thing. People are creative. And creativity is just is a really broad thing. And people, when they use creativity to try to like <laughs> try to get you, yeah. they can if you don't have thick skin. And I've experienced this. Okay, you don't remember when I used to do the Hinato show. Yeah. Right. So that's a anytime you're doing like comedy stuff or I, I don't know, like any kind of like creative stuff. To me, your stuff now is really hard to be like that sucks and try to like you know so it's kind of easy mm-hmm. I think you we kind of have it easy in that way in that way mm-hmm. because if someone's like Jocko's so stupid or something like that like, they make themselves look dumb because mm-hmm. it's so obviously not stupid but when you do like mm-hmm. a comedy thing well to me anyway I don't know so when you do like a comedy thing or you know something like that it's something of the nature oh. of Hinato show or bikini girls you know doing lightsaber fights or something like right. that yeah uh, People are going to tear that stuff apart. And the oh. stuff they say is like, dang, I didn't even think about that. But now I'm kind of have a complex about my videos <laughs> now, you know, kind of thing. So that's how I started on YouTube, by the way. So I was like kind of new to YouTube and putting stuff on when it oh, got, got an shredded. audience. Got shredded, man. Hurt and your not, feelings. And here's the thing, too. You, about, don't, you don't really have thick skin. I would say. At, then, at that time, it was thinner. In, in the beginning, I don't think anyone really has thick skin unless they have the heads up going in. So. Mm. And here's the weird thing. It's like most people, they like it because they're fans of Hinata or something like that. But then when one guy now, after like 50 comments of like, haha, this guy's hilarious. Oh, this video is funny or whatever, whatever. One guy says it sucks. You're like, it sucks. I know it's, you know, it gets to you. It's weird how mm-hmm. that works. Nonetheless, the point is you reading the YouTube comments is a wacky, wild, bold adventure. And I respect you for going, going on that adventure. Nonetheless, Jocko reads them, so boom, question <laughs> answered, right? Was it a question, or did he say was, they don't? No, they don't. Read? It was a statement, saying straight up they don't. Read. I don't know why we're even writing anything, Jocko and Echo. Don't even read these comments. Meanwhile, he wrote that. I was borderline, kind of, like maybe I should just respond for once and say, "Hey, what up? I'm right here, reading, yeah, yeah. in the darkness. They came yeah. out of the darkness for once. Yeah, man, that's good. Maybe that's another way to engage, right? I just figured like YouTube comments um, is kind of. I don't know. It's not as authentic, you know. Mm. Yeah, well, it it's random. Seem... Uh, what is your uh, anonymous? Yeah, a lot of stuff, time. which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Nonetheless, if you want, subscribe to the YouTube channel for the video version and excerpts, which are valuable. I've come to know the value of, of excerpts, and um, you know some enhanced excerpts. We'll call them enhanced. Put some music on there. Some text, kinetic typography. You know what that is. Does that yeah. sound familiar? Uh, well, kinetic, I know what that means. And yeah, typography, and, I know what that means. So yeah. I'm, I'm putting it together, yeah. Yeah, man. So, it, you know, when you put it on a video, it's like, you know, the words kind of an- get animated on there. Yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah. You Little. like that stuff. I like it, too. It does. It becomes kind of captivating. Mm. Some people are really good at it, man. They, they do it. Anyway, nonetheless, cool videos on there. If you want to subscribe, subscribe. Good way to support. Also, Jocko's Store. It's called JockoStore.com. It's called Jocko Store. The website is JockoStore.com. That's what I'm saying. That's where you can get your shirts. Same shirt Jocko wears every day. The Victory MMA shirt. You can get it there. <laughs> Boom. Also, Discipline Equals Freedom. Get after it. Some bumper stickers on there. Decals on there. Hoodies on there. Women's stuff on there. Patches. Velcro. Beanies? I haven't seen any beanies. We're waiting for winter Rash now. Rash guards are on there. Cashmere blend directly picked from the high mountains of Bulgaria. <laughs> sure. Uh, it, well, the good news about the beanies is that they're 
in route, in route, en route, in route. Sure. That's not They're even on English their way. word. They're on the way. <laughs> Straight up, put in the order. We we came down to the, all the stuff, and boom, they're on the way, man. Straight Good up. To hear. Yeah. Well, you know, Christmas is on the way. I'm just <laughs> right. It'll be worth the wait, I think, Maybe. in my opinion. Unless it's called JockoStore.com. If you want something, get something. Check out the stuff if you like it. Get something. Good way to support. Also, psychological warfare. If you don't know what that is, it's an album on iTunes and Stitcher and in wherever you can buy MP3s. It's an album, Jocko album, with tracks, Jocko tracks. I don't think you can buy MP3s on Stitcher, by the way. Oh, yeah. Then don't, don't go to Stitcher then yeah, for it. Go no. to Amazon Music or something like that or Google Play or, you know, wherever else you can get them. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Anyway, it's a track with Jocko helping you. Okay. When you go on your path, you have moments of weakness. We all do. All of us do. Even Jocko. I think. <laughs> but when we, when I have a moment of weakness, you know, if Jocko's there to be like, hey, look, not yell. I don't want Jocko yelling at me. I don't want anyone yelling, really. Some people do. I get it. I respect. But personally, and a lot of us don't want Jocko yelling at us. No need to yell. No need, right? Yeah. A yell is, is not impactful. Yeah. Well, it's a short impact. Yeah, I'd yeah, rather yeah. have a long impact. Yeah, and then the yelling is kind of like... rather have something pragmatic telling me like, oh, here's an actual reason yeah. why I should not miss this workout. Yep, and that's exactly what it is. why I should not eat this donut. Exactly right. That's exactly what it so is. So one of my favorite Twitter things of all time is that little girl from Australia saying, imitating me saying, sugar-coated lies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was good. 100% good, yeah. yes. I just, that's a good one. Yeah, notice you weren't yelling on that one. No, she kind of made it. It's funny, the way she heard it was almost like yelling, you know? Like right. she goes, these are sugar-coated lies. Yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> that even, is kind of how you said it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very good. Nonetheless, it's practical. Jocko pr- telling you practically and pragmatically why you shouldn't skip the workout, why you shouldn't, or why procrastination kills you so mm-hmm. it's like you'll be like oh sh-. it's almost like you gain a, a deeper understanding of the potential weakness and you can get past it works 100 percent success rate in my experience check well also you've got if you want you can get some jocko white tea and you know what sure it tastes good sure it's got antioxidants in it but let's face it there's no other drink that's guaranteeing an eight thousand pound deadlift no other drink not that i know of, no so you get some Jocko White tea, get an 8,000-pound deadlift. Check. Next question. A lot of people do all kinds of working out. They try and but try the triple complex. Do the uh, they come up with these big plans. Just drink Jocko White tea. You're there. Yep. No, need, no need to even play around. Yep. Check. Uh, books. Way the Warrior Kid. We talk about staying on the path. What's the path? A lot of people are looking for the path. But what if someone could show you the path? Well, the, fu- the fact is the path can be found and it's simply and clearly put forward to you in the Way of the Warrior Kid books, of which there are two. And they will put kids on the right path. This is the book everyone wishes they had when they were kids. Everyone. Everyone that's read it has said to me, oh, I wish I had this when I was a kid. I'm like, yeah, me too. Me too. I didn't have it. Had to just kind of b- wander around trying to figure out where the path is. But no, you don't need to have that happen. 
So a lot of the path is covered in book one, but now book two is coming out, Way of the Warrior Kid 2. It's called Mark's Mission, More Lessons Learned, Controlling Your Temper, Saving Money, How to Get People to Stop Making Fun of You. That's important to know as a little kid, right? Controlling fear of failure, because a lot of kids, you don't think of this, you, when you think of fear of failure, you think of like an adult that's saying, oh, you know, I don't really know if I wanna step out. Man, that guy's afraid of failure. Mm-hmm. Like that that's for kids even more so kids don't even want to try something because they're gonna afraid they're gonna look bad Yeah, I remember my daughter when she was 13 my oldest daughter. She was 13 years old and I, she was kind of interested in something I was like, oh, well, why don't you you know try it? She's like I'm too old to start. She's 13 <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. So how do you get kids to come over that? Well, you you introduce them to these books building a business That's something that kids don't think about very often they should be they should be thinking about starting businesses, earning money when they're young, learning the value of money when they're young. They should absolutely be learning about it. This book's going to make every kid better. It'll make them a warrior kid. So here's what you do. You pre-order the book now. That's my recommendation. Mark's mission. Pre-order the book now. There's a couple reasons why. Number one, you don't. it's happened with the other books that I've come out with. If you don't order it pre-order, then guess what? You go to order and it's not out of stock. And then you're mad at me. Everyone's like, oh, your supply and band isn't working really well there, Jocko. Hey, okay, I'll take ownership of that. Guess what? Order the book and you'd have it. How's that? That's my recommendation. So if you order, the other thing that's good about it is if you order it, it spreads the word and more kids will hear about it because there's no big advertising. I just got a thing the other day from somebody. It was a tw- uh, social media. I think it was Twitter. You know, you might want to check with your, I don't know what your marketing team's telling you. I'm like, hey, hey, I don't have a marketing team over here. It's mm. me and Echo. We're kicking it. So if you want to help spread the word, order the book. It's due out April 24th. It's Way the Warrior Kid 2, Mark's Mission. And if you want to see a an actual warrior kid in action, check out irishoaksranch.com. Aiden, he's a warrior kid. He's only 12 years old, but has his own business, speaking to businesses. You can get his soap that he makes from goat milk. Very good soap, by the way. Yeah. It's got a good motto, too. The motto of the soap is stay clean. Sounds sure. simple, but you know what? There's a lot of layers there. Layers. Yep. Hey, don't forget the Discipline Equals Freedom field manual. Eating, thinking, fighting, working out, life. We're talking about life. Get the manual on how to live your life. The field manual. Discipline equals freedom. For the amp, for the audio version of that, you can't find it on Audible because it's not there. The audio version of Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual is on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, other MP3 platforms as an album with tracks. Yes, Don't you know? <laughs> also, Extreme Ownership, Combat Leadership for Business and Life. And on top of that, Leif Babin and I are bringing out the follow-on to Extreme Ownership. It's called The Dichotomy of Leadership. It's got knowledge and lessons learned from the battlefield and business and life. You can pre-order that book right now. Did you know that? You can pre-order it now. If you didn't know that, you can pre-order that book now. Comes out September 25th. Again, if you wanna get the book when it comes out, order it now. Otherwise, it'll sell out and you'll be mad at me. Hey, I'm down. You can be mad at me. That's cool. For even more leadership, we have Echelon Front. That's my leadership and 
my leadership consulting company, me, Leif Babin, JP Dinell, Dave Burke. You want us to come out to work with your team, email info at echelonfront.com or you can check out that website. And of course, there's the muster, which is our leadership seminar. We're only doing two year two this year, Washington, DC, May 17th and 18th, San Francisco, October 17th and 18th. Both are going to sell out. They're going to sell out. So get registered now at extremeownership.com. The entire Echelon Front team is going to be there. And no, we're not going to be in the green room. We're not going to be sitting back there drinking warm cups of milk. No. <laughs> we'll be with you the whole time, interacting, answering questions. We'll be eating. We'll be talking. We'll be working out. Just basically getting after it, as they say. So come and get it at the muster. And lastly, new announcement, roll call. Roll call 001 September 21st in Dallas, Texas. This is for current military, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, other first responders. One day leadership seminar about leadership in a dynamic environment. So you can also sign up for that at extremeownership.com. We thank you all for your service and want to give you a little bit back. We look forward to seeing you there. And until we see you at the muster or we see you at the roll call, if you have anything else for us, you can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on the Fable Hockey. <laughs> Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks to everyone for listening, especially members of the armed forces that put it on the line every day to hold the line. And to the police and law enforcement, firefighters, EMTs, and other first responders. Thanks for being there when we call on you. And to everyone else out there listening, don't just listen. Lead. Take charge. Take a stand. Raise your hand and raise your voice and say, I got this then take up your position on whatever battlefield you are on and get after it. So until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.